0: How should fantasy owners react when pitchers change their mix? I'll ask Jason Colette from RotoWire and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast next on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Learn to play the winner's way, cause Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the twenty-second. It's show number twenty-two of the two thousand eighteen fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature interview with Jason Colette from RotoWire and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast, discussing pitch mix changers, Paul Goldschmidt's headspace, hitters getting framed, Tampa Bay Rays news, and boons and bane's. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols looking at closers Brandon Morrow and Hunter Strickland going to the DL, and more. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at bad news for Dustin Pedroia, good news for Andrew Kashner, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon reports on Houston right-handed pitching prospect Forrest Whitley. In our frequent flyer commentary, baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Detroit starting pitcher Alex Fiedo, And in our pitcher matchup segment, baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at Arizona right-hander Zach Greinke in Pittsburgh to face right-hander Jamison Tyon, as well as other weekend matchups. Later in the show, I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about catching situations with non-contending teams in the American League. And finally, in Master Notes, I'll be talking about unlucky starting pitchers. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Like there's not enough injury trouble in baseball, now we get a guy breaking his own hand, punching a door, and another guy wrenching his back, putting on his pants. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday, full edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Jason Collette from Rotowire and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Jason, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a while.
1: It has been, but thanks for having me back. I always enjoy my appearance.
0: You are the top bidder in Tout AL for the week. You splashed out 80 units for Jabari Blash of the Angels. What was your thinking on Jabari Blash, and what was your bidding process in setting an 80-unit bid?
1: I just keep trying to find at-bats. And I was the guy that owned Cole Calhoun, so when I looked at it, I, was, I could, Calhoun's on the disabled list. Maybe he comes back this week. Maybe he doesn't. Even if he comes back, perhaps Blash stays up there and is the is the platoon partner in that situation. And I got all of I think four plate appearances before Blash was sent back down, and I have to keep him up active all week, which uh, which is unfortunate because <laughs> yeah, Calhoun's already homered, uh, but I can't uh, do anything. With them until later this week, so it was just trying to find some playing time and then trying to make up offense because having to you know drafting Calhoun uh, obviously has not worked out well. Uh, I also have Morales, who's just now starting to heat up. uh You know, Brandon Drury seven dollars speculation, even though he is just destroying a baseball. There's no room for him on the Yankees right now, so he's staying down in a So right right there, that's about I think thirty four dollars of my draft day. Uh, that's doing nothing for my roster, uh, and that kind of explains where I'm at. I, I'm, my, right now, the fact that I'm banking on Isaiah uh, K- uh, kiker um getting his catcher eligibility now uh, off my bench, that's going to be a big thing for me, and that kind of sums up my tout war season so far.
0: You know, a a different catcher sort of situation sums up my terrible tout war season as well. I was actually uh, waiting for Russell Martin to get some position eligibility somewhere else so that I could draft a catcher who wasn't going to play so I could put Russell Martin somewhere in my lineup to replace another guy who wasn't playing or was playing so awfully. And Russell Martin, of course, not exactly setting the world on fire either. You also acquired left-handed reliever Jose Alvarez of the Angels. What was your thinking on him?
1: But really, for him, it's just a matter of watching him pitch of late, and I liked how he's being brought in in leverage situations uh, and missing bats. And really, when it comes down, one of the things I needed to do uh, was give myself some options, because I had, because of uh, trying to catch a bat, I had cut some pitchers, and I had no pitching bench. And so Alex Cobb, I had to get him out of my lineup, because um, he was a guy that I was trying to spot start. But then when I made a trade, I traded Garrett Richards, and then no, not Garrett Richards. I traded um, uh, Jake Junis. And then I had then when Garrett Richards went down, I had to put Alex Cobb back in my lineup, and then that had to go. So I had to find a reliever that was doing some things that I would watched Alvarado pitch uh, or Alvarez pitch and, and liked them. So I I picked them up, and I'm going that route right now.
0: Have you made uh, a couple of trades this year? It's been a busier year than I remember in the uh, AL Tout League.
1: I've made the Jake Junis trade for Jed Lowry. And I think that may be the only one I've done. I don't recall doing a second one, but that may be the only one that was a couple of weeks ago.
0: Well, I'll be in touch.
1: <laughs> no problem. No problem. Uh, I uh, hopefully we've got some. Uh, uh, you know, well, the was able to get back in my lineup, so I, I I'm uh, I have some needs, and really, it's offense.
0: Yeah, I have some – my plan is to trade power for speed, so if you've got any uh, ideas on that, uh, feel free to email me. I'll feel free to email you. Uh, Let's move on to your uh, Colette Calls column at RotoWire. You had a really good column just the other day about how some pitchers said before the season that they would be changing their pitch mixes, and you pointed out that sometimes they say they're going to do that and then they don't actually do it, whether because it was just hype or because they tried to do it and it wasn't working for them. And you also wondered if it was going to be effective. And we'll talk to about specific pitchers in a second. But first, what made you decide to look into this whole angle?
1: Well, I've been uh, tracking new pitches now four or five years. I mean, for me, it's a matter of every year somebody comes out of the. You you watch somebody. You're used to seeing how they're going to perform, and then all of a sudden, it's wow. uh, What are they? You know, the the numbers are great. What are they doing differently? Is it a case of they're just getting lucky, or is there some process behind? what's going on and then you know a few years back you look and all of a sudden you're like wow this guy's got more swing in this oh he's incorporated uh, a changeup, or he's incorporated a splitter or all of a sudden you know his his righty lefty splits are better because he found a pitch that could go the other way or give guys something to think about uh another time through the lineup i would point to you know you and i here are talking uh wednesday afternoon last or thursday rather last night there was a uh, you know Nate Ivaldi's did pitch and Nate Iavaldi has always had problems uh, with splits and he's always had problems staying in the lineup longer uh, and this is a guy that I would you know when he added the splitter a couple of years ago it definitely helped some of his some of his things but he still's not a guy that can get through the lineup because it's fastball it's splitter and then it's a show me breaking ball that's a guy that really needs another pitch but it hasn't shown up and then last night he was cruising through eighteen and then. Uh, batters nineteen through uh, nineteen, twenty, and twenty-one, all homer, all homered right in a row, back to back to back. Like, and then it happened the previous outing where they left him out too long, and then so he's now all of a sudden he's got six earned runs they really didn't need to have. But it, that, it, so you know, the way to change this is try to add new pitches. Um, I think a recent example, somebody I actually did, I believe I wrote about him a little bit was Julius Chasine. You know, he's added a splitter this year in season. And that's for him is a big thing, too, because he's always had problems uh, trying to get lefties out. He's talked about doing a changeup a couple of times, uh, and it just hasn't stuck. So he's turned the changeup into a split finger. He and Jeremy Jeffress, both under the influence of pitching coach Derek Johnson, uh, and it's working really well for him. So that, that's really where I got into it. Is I just wanted to find that extra. I used to uh, start using it as a tiebreaker. If I had two pitchers, I wasn't really sure which one I wanted to rank higher. Uh, somebody's working on a new pitch, okay, that's probably going to add to a few more strikeouts, so I'm going to bump that guy up. And now it's something I just do every spring, and, and, and if I don't, people are like, hey, where are the new pitch updates? I, I need something. You know, give me something. So you know, I get help from Jeff Zimmerman, uh, get help from the guys that, at Brooks Baseball. We'll say, hey, we're seeing something in the data, uh, and people point it out. And so every year, 50, 60, 70 pitchers show up on that list. And maybe about half of them do something with it. And of that half, uh, another, you know, of that half, probably 30% of them stick with it. And you can see that improvement in their, in their numbers from it.
0: You mentioned you've been doing this for a few years. Does any pitcher stand out in your mind as, as made, making a really huge jump, whether in fantasy purposes or real baseball purposes, because of, of a pitch change that turned out to be really super effective?
1: If you look at the change Trevor Bauer made, I mean, Trevor Bauer's pitching great baseball this year, but this process started last year. I mean, last year he decided he was going to bust out the, the slider in season, and it became a difference maker. He really turned that corner last year when he did that slider. And then there was a lot of talk this offseason about, you know what, that slider was great, but I'm going to change it. I mean, we all know he's a very cerebral guy and, and worked a lot with driveline baseball. And was, you go back and look at some of his offseason tweets and videos. He was doing things with the baseball, trying to figure out and get the optimal action on his slider. And then you see how he's pitching this year. And you can, so all that hard work is paying off for him. Uh, and again, what I mentioned earlier with Shashin, guys that are adding pitches in season, when they do something like this, it could change the course of the, of the way things are going uh, for them in season. So uh, I think Bauer's the most recent great example of here's something new. And then Jeremy Jeffress, as well, as I mentioned earlier, the splitter, I mean, he's become a uh, an amazing reliever. Uh, Josh Hader gets all the attention uh, there, but Jeremy Jeffress has been pitching all-star quality baseball.
0: As a general rule, how long do you think it takes for a pitcher to master the new pitcher and maybe not master just saying too much about it, but for a pitcher to get enough command of it that it becomes a useful addition to his arsenal and... Is that, a, is that a common thing? Or uh, You mentioned some percentages about how often it fails, but uh, how long does it take for it to, to really take place and become part of the arsenal that we can trust as fantasy owners?
1: It takes a while. I mean, if we think back to uh, Chris Archer, Chris Archer's been toying with a change-up for years. Uh, and then he'll throw one in the game, hang it, it gets banged out of the park, and then you don't see that pitch again for three outings. Right This year he's actually throwing it a little more and is stuck with it, but this has been a... a, a something that's plagued him since his days as a prospect where people are like, is he going to be a starter or a closer? Cause he's got two good pitches, but no, nothing off speed and his command waivers. Uh, so it's something he has stuck with. And now it's finally starting to show some fruits, but often if guys struggle out of the gate with it, it's gone. I mean, they'll, they'll talk about it in spring training and they'll use it in spring training. But if they come into April, use it and it gets banged around it's, it's Dunsville. I think, you know, a lot of people, uh, this happens on the hitting side of things too. A lot of people will look at last year, and you look at you know uh, DeAndre Alonso and Justin Smoke and Logan Morrison how they changed their fortunes with launch angle and what have you. But Logan Morrison actually tried to do this in 2016, and he got off to such a horrendous start at six for sixty that he scrapped it and went back to his old way of doing things. And he put up his traditional flash line of like 240 and slugging a 410 and and, and whatnot. And then in 17 he spent uh, in the offseason he spent more time working on things, and then he had his huge year last year that was able to get him a contract uh, here with the Twins this year. So it's just a matter of sometimes they'll start it and get rid of it, and and they'll come back to it. A a recent story I saw with um, uh, Pirates, somebody had a new pitch. Somebody was talking about a new pitch the other day. Um, I think it was Musgrove. Somebody had a new pitch, and they were talking about it, Uh, and it was actually something they talked about last year. And ended up not sticking with it so now it's popping up this year and so we're looking at it as a new pitch for this year when in fact they were they, they talked about it last year tried it didn't like it and then came back to it this year
0: one of the pitchers you did mention as having walked the talk uh, his preseason was lance mccullers of houston who said he was planning to re-emphasize his change-up uh, i take it that he did do that what happened with the pitch
1: yeah, he did. He actually he was throwing a hard changeup, so he slowed it down. If we think of changeups with all the ones we see in our head, it's it, it's the the fade action on that. Well, the harder you throw that pitch, uh, it doesn't have as much time to fade. And so with him, what he recognized last year is he was throwing it too hard, and there wasn't enough separation uh, for the pitch. A lot of talk you know, with the with pitch tunneling and how pitches all look the same, a certain distance from release point towards the plate, and then they start tumbling off. Well, if it, with that hard changeup, if you throw it too hard, it doesn't have that much separation. So for him, he slowed it down. He didn't slow his arm speed down. He just really did some things with with grip, and he's now he's getting more fade off that pitch. So it comes out of the same tunnel as that fastball, and then it starts diving, and you're seeing some ugly swings this year when you watch him pitch. Uh, and that's what encourages me. When guys recognize, okay, this pitch is it's good for me, but I can make it better. And in his case, that's how he's made it better.
0: On the flip side, uh, Julio Tehran of Atlanta promised to revise his slider. He said he wanted to change his grip because he wanted to get more bite on the pitch, a little more uh, downward movement in particular. How did that work out?
1: Uh, it's worked out. It's put him back in line. So with him, a lot of times sliders get loopy. When guys talk about they want to tighten the slider, and so it's more it's more of an eleven to five than than more of that ten to four that loopy movement. They need it to stay in the strike zone and or look like a strike i'll call these pseudo strikes they need to be able to get uh throw the pseudo strike pitch so it looks like a strike longer it doesn't disappear out of the zone uh too quickly and guys uh spit on it so one of the things with him is his uh, the numbers off his slider batting average wise have gone up and down every year and last year was highest than has been in his career uh so we look at some of the struggles last year we know julio tehran struggles to pitch at home uh that's always been one of the things but he's been well done well in the road but last year uh, you know the slider just really abandoned him. He needed it to be a weapon for him, and it wasn't this year it has been. I mean, he's holding the guys to a, when I wrote the article a two fourteen batting average uh, off that slider, and he's uh, the pitch is taking the shape that he wanted. It's not uh, it's got more drop to it, and it has the, it, all that work he put in the spring has held for him.
0: I had some pretty high hopes, Jason, for Marco Estrada coming into the season. I drafted him in Tout American League, and he certainly has dashed those hopes again. Uh, He was like Lance McCullers in a way. He was recommitting to his changeup because for a few years uh, from 2013 to 16, it was actually a pretty effective pitch. Then last year it wasn't effective at all, and this year it's maybe even worse. What has gone wrong with Marco Estrada's changeup, and why can't he fix it? Well, you know, last year he talked
1: about – he said he was tipping it, and that's why people were trashing this changeup. Uh, yeah, the guys would face him and just really be able to blast it. And he said he was tipping it. He was working more, like, okay, I'm going to – I'm going to work on, on whatever tells I'm giving away, uh, and so I won't be tipping it. I think, honestly, he was just throwing it too much. I mean, last when you look at his changeup year over year batting average, it's always been a pitch that's been, you know, batting average against 175, 190, 184, 162. And then last year it was 245. So that's quite a big jump. Uh, but then this year, at the time I wrote the article, it was even higher at 264. Uh, but I'm actually encouraged of late with, uh, with Estrada. He's somebody that Paul and I have, we picked up recently in labor on the sheet. Uh, two of his three last starts. Has been against the Nationals, the Orioles, and the Yankees. And in those in those starts, he's allowed a total of three earned runs across those three outings. So he's pitching better. Uh, and what, when I looked at the in-game data to say, okay, what, what is he doing differently? He's not throwing his changeup as much. I think he recognized, okay, uh, it, it's still not working for me as much, but I can. It's still a pitch I need. So now he's doing. When I've watched, I was able to watch his game against. Uh, against the Yankees and what I saw of him doing more of the changing eye levels, throwing the fastball up, throwing the change up down, but making sure that he doesn't get into those unfortunate counts where he has to come into the strike zone because you'll note, uh, you know, I said three earned runs. He's also allowed only three walks over those three starts. And that's where he gets into trouble is when he falls behind, he's got to come into the strike zone uh, and he got hurt. But I'm encouraged of how he's pitched of late. I know when I wrote the article, um, and I seem to have some of this going on lately because a couple of the hitters that I've talked about saying, hey, they're really struggling, I wonder what's going on, and then they get up. So uh, you can hit me up on Twitter if you want me to write about your particular struggling player uh, because I seem to have that touch right now if I tell, if I write about somebody and, and say they're doing poorly, they seem to turn it around right after, that, right after I publish the article.
0: Can I ask you, uh, as a longtime friend and colleague, you could just do my whole team.
1: You and me both. That'll be my that'll be my collect call topic for this weekend. Let's look at Patrick and Jason's
0: Tower team. Oh man, yeah, not much to look at, I have to say. Justin Verlander said he was going to continue with the changeup that was effective in the Astros World Series run and he wanted to refine his curve. He didn't do a lot, though, to follow through. What didn't Justin Verlander do this year that he promised he might?
1: Well, it's really more talk than actually. He said that if we go back and look at his uh, postseason run, he was really using the changeup well in the postseason. Uh, and he had talked about, hey, I, I want to take this take this, and bring it forward. And I want to get my you know, tighten up my curveball. And he really hasn't done either. But he's been pitching some great baseball. Uh, it's just, when you have the quality of fastball that he has and the command of that pitch that he has, he doesn't really need to do these other things. Uh, it's Nice that he talked about it, but I didn't see anything in the numbers uh, that would say he definitely followed through on what he talked about. But his fastball uh performing so well this year; it doesn't matter.
0: It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because uh, there's uh, there's always an element around of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And a lot of pitchers, a lot of ball players, a lot of athletes, for that matter. Uh, sometimes obsess about being better than they were even when they were doing really, really well. And uh, at at some point, how do they manage that and and, uh, how much do you as an analyst look at a player and say, I think you're doing fine, I would rather you didn't change this particular aspect of your game, or do you look at it and say, hey, you're doing really good and if you're trying to get better, go for it?
1: Yeah, I mean, when it comes there's a couple of times, like for a pitcher, we've already seen Verlander go through this process. You know, there was a point earlier in his career, a couple of years back, where we wondered, okay, how does his career move forward here? The fastball, he's not hitting triple digits anymore. How does he move forward? Does he add the new pitch? Does he just work on his uh, mechanics and get to his delivery? Obviously, going to Houston, they've done some things with him that have revitalized uh, what he's doing. Uh, but you come to a point where the pitcher loses the, fat, the fastball; is just not going to be as good anymore. And then you've got to figure out how are they going to be able to pitch without the without the quality fastball that they had as they made their reputation. Uh, so I I like to see guys to try different things, move on the you know move angles on the uh, on the pitching rubber. Maybe if they if they've struggled against lefties, if they're a right-handed pitcher that has struggled against lefties, but they're pitching from the third base side of the rubber, why are you doing that? Move over? I mean, if we think back to one of the guys who used to crack me up was a uh, status uh, from Boston. He used to move on the pitching rubber by the batter. So if it was a lefty, he would pitch from the first base side. If it was a righty, he would pitch from the third base side. Yeah, why not? Uh, we've seen the, the number like Justin Miller, the the season he's having out of the Nationals' bullpen, that's a guy that they moved over as well, and he's just been fantastic this year. Uh, just I think uh, earlier this week uh, just allowed his first run run um as a major league pitcher and he's you know just been a guy that's we've seen him come up and down for a number of years and nobody saw this kind of season coming uh from him. but what he's done in AAA and in the majors has been fantastic so seeing those types of changes uh try something uh to to keep things moving and uh, you just try to stay one step ahead of the hitter i mean these things pitchers make adjustments hitters make adjustments to those pitchers adjusting and then just keep playing that game of chess throughout your career
0: you mentioned a couple of guys on, on Houston, and you mentioned Trevor Bauer, and i got one more picture uh, that I want to ask you about, but before that, uh, Trevor Bauer quite famously got into it as a, in a Twitter battle with a couple of guys in Houston, and a, some people in their front office, and their manager, and everybody were all kind of shooting spitballs at each other, and the gist of it seemed to be that the the pitchers who move to Houston and then start really doing well, Trevor Bauer, uh, basically implied that they were doing it by using pine tar or some other kind of uh, grip uh, adhesive to enhance their ability to spin the ball. What do you make of that? Did you? I'm sure you followed the story. What did you think of it?
1: It's all being done in plain sight. If you watch a game, I want. If you watch a game, watch the pitcher when the when the cameras get on the pitcher, watch how many times the pitcher will take their pitching hand and go to their glove hand and rub their forearm. It happens so often now. It's almost as regular as somebody adjusting their crotch as on the baseball field. But you see this all the time where pitchers will go, they'll take a new baseball, they'll tuck their glove under, they rub the baseball, and then you'll see them go to their forearm, uh, it, either the top side or the bottom side. And a lot of that was made uh, infamous a few years ago. Uh, Red Sox spraying bullfrog. Uh, on there. But it, I used to make jokes. We would see them with Bullfrog in the Tropicana Field dugouts. I mean, the Tropicana Field, the sun is absolutely blinding under a roof, right? Uh, but everybody's doing this in plain sight. You see so much of it, and the league just says, okay, whatever, go ahead. And uh, so that's where things stick, and you know, literally stick. And uh, you saw the, the the ball stick to Yadier Molina's chest protector last year. This is all happening. Frankly, I'm I'm it's because i'd rather see especially in colder weather where the ball is a little tougher i'd rather see guys have the better grip on the baseball so we don't have an unfortunate accident of guys getting hit but the league's got to come out and say something about this otherwise just, it's just going to continue to happen i i think there's truth to both sides of the argument but uh, again watch these guys pitch and watch how often they're going to their glove hand when they get a new baseball or they're getting a it's a two strike it's a tight at bat and the the ball's coming back and they know they want to go to the breaking ball. Just watch some of the non-pitch actions and see how much of it's happening.
0: That was the kind of the, the point that I reached when I was thinking about this is uh, in reading about more of it once I saw the, the uh, argument break out. I looked into it and it seemed pretty much common knowledge that everybody pretty much is doing it or a lot of guys are doing it because they uh, realize some benefit. So I kind of wondered to myself, why is Trevor Bauer making such a big thing out of something that everybody knows is going on? And why are the Astros pitchers responding as though it's not going on when everybody knows it's going on? It's like the, you know, it's like having an argument, you and I having an argument about whether the sun rose and, and whether it should have. You know, it, it just seems sort of foolish and pointless at this, uh, this juncture, doesn't
1: it? It's kind of like everything else in society. Everybody has to take a side to something of late. Uh, consensus yeah. is, is one of those rare things. I mean, to me, I just would have. If I'm an asterisk pitcher, I just tune out and be like, okay, whatever. I'm. I would just keep. Re, I would just keep replying with pictures of a ring and be like, hey, you like this thing? Yeah. Here, like this, and just keep pointing to the scoreboard. Uh, I I wouldn't get in this fight, but again, everybody. This is why you don't see. I'm waiting. There was a couple of years ago in a game where uh, Davy Johnson asked the umpire to go check. Uh, Joel Peralta, when he came in for a tight relief appearance when Tampa Bay was facing the Nationals. And sure enough, uh, Peralta had pine tar on his hat or something. The reason why he knew that is because Peralta had pitched for the Nationals, and the Nationals, they knew he was doing this, right? But on the other side of the equation, okay, we're going to call him out. But that's really the last time I've seen a manager come out and do something that everybody knew was going, everybody knew was happening. We haven't seen a manager come out uh, and say, hey, you know go check if he's got something on his forearm because every pitcher has got something on their forearm right now
0: and finally cole hamels said before the season he was going to adopt and i'm quoting here a kershaw like slider and i guess if you're going to adopt any new pitch a kershaw like slider is a good place to start but what does kershaw like slider mean and how well did cole hamels do in adopting it he's having a pretty good year
1: yeah, I mean, he's using—he's actually using the pitch. He's never thrown a slider before. And so, like I mentioned earlier about pitch tunneling, the slider's really playing well off this fastball. And he's only using the pitch about 5% of the time, but it's something new. And early on, it, it was it was helping. He was getting strikeouts because you, you get a custom Batters are getting a custom well, okay, I've faced like Cole Hamels 30 times in my career. I know it's going to be a fastball, breaking ball, or a changeup. Oh, wow, what is that? That's a slider? Uh, but it looked just like a fastball coming out of his hand for a while. Uh, and so that's really been the success he's had. This is where I think that the next round of, of new pitch stuff is really going to come into play, um, is is guys looking for pitches that pair well with what they have. Uh, sometimes we'll see guys talking about, hey, I'm changing my changeup from a two-seam changeup to a four-seam changeup. Well, it makes sense. If they throw a four-seam fastball, why would you change your changeup grip to something else so that immediately the batter's going to be able to pick up some of that stuff so I think this in this case this really pairs well uh with his fastball and it's just the same tunnel and by the time the batter decides okay it's fastball it's slider and uh, if they guess wrong they're going to get either missed contact or poor contact and this is an example of a veteran extending his career because I really didn't want any part of Hamels um, coming into the season I didn't like what I saw but you know I'm regretting not buying him on the cheap uh, especially how he would have helped my team early on in the season
0: you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jason Collette from roto and the Sleeper in the Bust podcast. And Jason, a while back in your Collette Calls column, you looked at the well-publicized problems Paul Goldschmidt was having. Uh, he was, I think, a $1 by 5 season up to that point. And your hypothesis was that the humidor had gotten into Goldschmidt's head. First, what did you mean by that?
1: Yeah, this actually came from a conversation. I had been out in California on a business trip and I sat down with Jeff Erickson and had some lunch, and we were talking about this uh, at the very topic two days before I wrote this article. And we were looking at, like, why is he having such a hard time hitting there? So I wanted to go in and dive into the numbers. And one of the things I noticed about him at that point was he was not pulling the baseball at home. We looked at to see what he was doing with fastballs. Uh, and he everything he was hitting was to the opposite field. Now, if you're talking a, a humidified Chase Field, ball's not going to travel much. And I know Goldsmith's got power to all fields, but there was a glaring absence of pulled fastballs and everything. And in in the past, you know, historically he's hit the ball well up the middle. Gap. He's been a lot of his stuff has been gap to gap. There, he's right, excellent power to center field. But an overwhelming amount of his batted balls off fastballs were going to right field. And that was, I think, that's why I looked at it. said, okay. Why are you going to change your approach? You've been so successful for so long in this manner. What's, what's causing this? Um, and honestly, uh, of late, I know th- I made this joke earlier that I write about somebody and he, and he gets better. Because the same thing happened with Marcelo Zuna of late. Uh, but Goldschmidt is... Uh, by the numbers doing better and he's actually pulled a few fastballs when we look at uh, over the last month and looking how he's done at home we do have uh we're actually seeing dots on the spray chart of fastballs being hit to the pull side which is great but the oddity for when i look at it uh it's all home runs or singles there's no doubles there's no triples he's got four home runs over the last month off fastballs two to the left two to the right and everything else is singles in the outfield there's no doubles or triples so i'm trying to Makes sense Well, I don't think he's out of the woods. It's a nice run of late, uh, but I don't think he's out of the woods either.
0: I noticed a 35% home run per fly ball rate and 46% hit rate over the last little while as well, and that makes him look also like he's been a little bit lucky. Overall, how much confidence do you have in Paul Goldschmidt as a, pl- as a player for the balance of the year? Uh,
1: on, the, on the 20 to 80 scale, I'll put it at about a, a 60 I can't forget what happened over the previous, you know, over the first seven weeks of the season, and I'll offset that a little bit with what he's done of late. Uh, certainly, the power is starting to show back up. But again, when it gets, when I look at the the batted ball behavior off that fastball, I need to see more than what we've seen because a lot of the home runs right now have come off non-fastballs.
0: All right, Jason, this has been great so far. Uh, I'll ask you to hang tight. We'll get you back for another segment a little later in the show. No problem. Jason Collette writes for Rotowire and co-hosts the Sleeper and the Bust podcast, and he'll be back a little later on in the show. Coming up next, though, our Market Watch reports on player news from the National League and the American League on Baseball HQ Radio.
2: Well, let's see. We have on the bags. We have who's on first? What's on second? I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find I out. I say who's on first? What's on second? I don't know who's on third. Are you the manager? Yes. You're going to be the coach too? Yes. And you know the fellow's name? Well, oh, I should. Well, then who's on first? Yes. I mean the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first? Who? The first base. Who? The guy playing who first? Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell That's me. That's it. That's who? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you got a first baseman. Certainly. Who's playing first? That's right. When you pay off the first baseman every month, who gets the money? Every dollar of it.
3: <laughs>
2: All I'm trying to find out is the fellow's name on first base. Who? The guy that gets the That's money. That's it. Who gets the money he first He does, day? every dollar. Sometimes his wife comes down and collects it. Whose wife? Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with that? Baseball HQ Radio.
0: Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League Report and our old pal, Baseball HQ analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
4: Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be
0: here. At the top of the podcast today, Nick, I mentioned two of the weirder injuries we're likely to hear about in a given season, and they both happened in the same week, and they both affected closers. In the first incident, Cubs closer Brandon Morrow injured his back while putting on his pants. Uh, Tom Kephart covers the Cubs for playing time today at baseballhq.com. What's the story with uh, Brandon Morrow, his pants and the Windy City?
4: Yeah, you know, I I guess the wind was blowing too hard in Chicago or something. The uh but Brandon Morrow is on the DL, uh was uh retroactive to Sunday, June the 17th. So, uh with the 10-day DL, that's not too long if the back uh, if the back cooperates, but at this point the Cubs will be looking for uh, who they can come up with to, just do save chances in the meantime. Uh, left-hander Justin Wilson, uh, blew the first save opportunity. So it looks like either Pedro Strop or, or Steve Sisic will get uh, the next options, uh, while Mara was gone and both have pitched, pitched very, very well. Uh, Sisic has been a little more healthy, heavily used and, uh, been on a roll recently. Two saves, nine holds. Uh, Pedro Strop has seven holds and one save. Uh, Sissek has a slight better XERA and BPV. Uh, Strop has a, care, a higher swinging strike rate, a better first pitch strike rate, so you know the, the either one of those two guys could uh, could go depending on uh, I guess how the manager's feeling that particular night. Uh, but look for for Sissick and Strop, and maybe even Justin Wilson uh, to get opportunities while Morrow is out.
0: And Justin Wilson had a, a few chances earlier in the season and didn't uh, acquit himself terribly well. Is is that not correct?
4: I, th- that is correct. And, uh, Wilson, you know, there are guys. They're guys who simply uh, can't, apparently don't pitch well under the pressure of uh, of closing, and Justin Wilson might be one of those guys. So it's one of those things where you can pitch great in the eighth inning, but when the, the closing pressure comes on, uh, things get a little bit different.
0: And of course, he's left-handed, which uh, some uh, managers don't like in their closers. I'm not sure about Joe Madden, who's usually thought of as being a little more uh, relaxed about that kind of thing. Uh, the Cubs recalled a guy named Justin Hancock uh, for the twenty six man in a doubleheader on Tuesday. I guess he stays up. Has he got any any chance of uh, figuring in the saves situation?
4: Uh, no, I don't think uh, I don't think he's going to figure in the save situation at all. Uh, just really a little playing time game and playing time gain in the. Uh uh, as a relief pitcher but probably won't get the save they've got three other good guys ahead of him at this point
0: not to be outdone san francisco closer hunter strickland broke his hand by punching a door after he blew a save he needed surgery on his pinky finger he'll be out a while uh, rob carroll covers san francisco for playing time today what happens in the city by the bay
4: yeah you know hunter strickland got uh, got really frustrated and uh may have frustrated himself uh, more than uh, uh than he wanted to um He's been very good as a closer Strickland has, uh, saves 13, uh, saves and 17 opportunities, 8.2 Dom, 3.7 control. So has done a good job. And, um, he, he took over the role after Mark Malasaw's elbow stalled, uh, his, uh, debut until early June. Uh, and so at this point, uh, Sam Dyson, we, I got the first opportunity, uh, is likely to get some opportunities. Uh, so, uh, uh so there's and Tony Watson in fact to get some some save opportunities in San Francisco so it's hard to say exactly right now who is going to get uh, most of the saves we've given the uh the first percentage to Dyson in terms of an increase in saves but uh Malosso got one on Thursday night uh after Dyson had picked one up the night before so um it's going to be kind of a manager's choice i think Wilson's a lefty uh and that uh, that may make some difference in terms of matchups so All three of those guys are probably worth stashing because uh, Strickland could be out a while. And so uh, any of those guys who are available in your league might be worth picking up uh, to look and see exactly what
0: happens. Uh, Paradoxically, though, uh, if they are mixing and matching and playing matchups and stuff like that, grabbing any one of them might not get you a lot of saves. And uh, don't you find it interesting... Uh, Nick, that these closer injuries are sometimes forcing managers into using their bullpens more intelligently by doing matchups rather than saying, you're my ninth-inning guy and you must pitch in the ninth inning and that's the only way we're going to do things around here. They are losing their closers and saying, well, now i got three guys to choose from. I'll use them in the best way I can.
4: Right. You know, as much as, as fantasy managers, we might not like that that uh, situation, but that probably does make a lot more sense, looking at the matchups, looking at how uh, – how Particular pitchers have done against particular hitters looking at the handedness and then making a decision about who's likely to be the best in that particular situation. So while well, as fantasy manager, we may say, no, don't do that uh, in terms of uh, actually playing a baseball game, that may make a lot more sense.
0: Still more closer news in the National League, this of a different sort. Uh, The Washington Nationals shored up their bullpen, uh, presuming a playoff run, and uh, they want to get deep into October. So they acquired Kansas City closer Kelvin Herrera, uh, I'm going to presume as a setup guy for now, and I'll ask Jock Thompson about what happens in Kansas City with Kelvin Herrera out of the picture. But meanwhile, what are the ramifications for saves and bullpen playing time in Washington?
4: Well, the, the current closer in Washington, Sean Doolittle, has been absolutely spectacular and is not likely to lose his role anytime soon. His Dom is 12.4, 13.7 command, a 200 BPV, pitching very, very well. So they're not going to change things at the, at the back end of the ninth inning in terms of the ninth inning. But Herrera makes a great eighth inning guy and that's where he's been coming in. So don't look for Kelvin Herrera to get a whole lot of saves in Washington unless there's an injury but uh, he's certainly going to shore up the back end of that bullpen. And that really gives a with with Ryan Madsen, Herrera, and Doolittle. uh, From the 7th and 8th and ninth innings on, Washington's in great shape.
0: Yeah, it's uh, too bad for all those Kelvin Herrera owners, even if you're allowed to keep his stats when he crosses over leagues, which I think is now how most leagues operate. You don't lose the guy just because he swaps leagues. If you're in uh, any kind of format uh, where you get to keep uh, Kelvin Herrera, and you don't get credit for holds. His value has really taken a, a pummeling here.
4: Yeah, it really has. I mean, we're, we've uh, got an eighty percent loss in saves for Herrera. Uh, so that if that's all your league counts is the saves and along with the along with the ERA and WHIP stats, then uh, yeah, Kelvin Herrera has uh, really lost value at this point. Unless there's an injury, he's not going to be uh, getting a lot of saves the rest of the way.
0: And uh, Phil Hertz, in covering the story for Playing Time today, noted that uh, Herrera has not exactly been as dominant as he has been in past years. He's walking hardly anybody, but his strikeout rate, his DOM rate of seven point seven strikeouts per nine innings, is almost as low as it's ever been.
4: It it has. I mean, Herrera is is not having his is almost having his career worst season in terms of skills at this point. Uh, DOM rate is is almost low and. Uh, and, and actually, velocity is the worst of his career. Uh, still, ninety-six point four for velocity—you can't uh, sneeze at that. But down a little bit from where he's where he normally sits. So uh, he's pitched well enough to uh, continue to close for almost any team in the majors, except perhaps Washington and a couple of others that have really steady closers. So Herrera makes a great eighth-inning grab for the Nationals.
0: And as you said, uh, you could be uh, interested in a national league only format or any place where Kelvin Herrera ends up in the free agent pool. Uh, Sean Doolittle in the past has not been the most reliable guy. He does have an injury record in the past.
4: Yeah, that's true. And uh, you know, if you're looking, if you're a Sean Doolittle owner, uh, backing him up with Kelvin Herrera makes a lot of sense uh, because that's certainly the way they're going to go should uh, should Doolittle get hurt. Uh, And uh, depending upon how your league counts things, uh, Herrera could be, in fact, very valuable in in a National League-only format.
0: Finally, Nick, in this uh, all-pitcher edition of Market Watch for the National League, let's talk about one starter. Uh, St. Louis starter Carlos Martinez started the season looking like a pretty good pitcher, close to ace quality. In his first eight starts, a 162 ERA, a 108 whip. Then he went on the DL, and since he came back in early June, he's really been struggling. Nick, four starts, he's pitched five innings only once, and his ERA over those four starts eight ten with a two fifty eight WHIP. His latest dud just here on Thursday, uh, four innings, seven earned runs, ten base runners. Ryan Bloomfield mentioned Martinez in his speculator column on surgers and faders. What is going on with Carlos Martinez?
4: You know, it's one of those things where if you just look at the surface stats, he still looks okay because he built up this this wonderful surge before he went on the DL with a one point six two ERA. You know, we talk about a lot of times about a poor April uh, masking uh, a guy's uh, a guy's uh, uh, surge after the weather warms up. In this case, uh, a great April is is masking uh, some really bad work that Martinez had done since he got back. Um, Maybe the, the key to looking at all of this, you know, you're, you're looking, we're looking at just the results, but also for, we've got control problems. We've got command issues uh, and his, his, uh, his velocity is actually down, not a whole lot, but a mile per hour. And with a guy like Martinez, that can make a difference. So you can't help but think there's got to be something wrong here. Uh, maybe he, got, he came off the DL too early. Uh, maybe he's not completely healed. Uh, maybe there's something else going on that everybody's missing at this point, but certainly Carlos Martinez is not right at the moment.
0: And you know what, Nick? I think you could make an argument that Carlos Martinez hasn't been right all year. Uh, he started the year with a really terrible outing. He walked six guys, I think it was, and and gave up uh, five earned runs or five or four earned runs against the Mets to open the season. And then uh, since that time, a uh, couple of walks, a couple of walks, four walks, three walks, two walks, three walks. And since he's come back, it's been like walk city, five, seven, six, and two in his most recent outing. But he's also giving up a lot of hits. I wonder if Carlos Martinez has been hurt this entire time, and uh, they put him on the DL, hoping that he'd get straightened out. But it doesn't seem to have happened, especially with this lack of control. That's always a very concerning sign. It is.
4: If you look at Martinez's record throughout the year, there's only one game in which he has has no walks, and that's that. That's not Carlos Martinez. Every other outing, at least two walks, and it's really been bad since he since he returned from the DL. Um, so, you may very well be right. There may have been something that, that wasn't right, right even to begin with. Uh, looking back at those, those, when he was doing well in April and May, we were looking at in April a 97% strand rate, a 23% hit rate. Uh, in, in May, a 24% hit rate. So, he was having some very good luck to, to help him produce those outstanding stats that he had in April and May. Uh, and so, you very well may be right. Something could be been wrong for a while with Carlos Martinez. That was uh, being masked by some very good luck in April and May.
0: And the other sort of red flag that you can look at for these all twelve of his starts is how seldom he gets deep into the games. He's got an uh, one outing, eight and a third, a uh, couple of outings around seven innings, but most of the rest are four, five, six.
4: Right, very definitely. And for a guy with his history, uh, usually' he's worked deeper into games than that. so you're very right. he's been he's been uh, getting uh, removed early. Uh, and running up high pitch counts I mean we're you know we're, we're looking at uh, his first start for example four innings pitched, 94 innings 90 pitches so it's not just a matter of not working late innings it's that he's building up pitch counts very early because he's not finding the plate as often
0: an excellent point uh, let me close by asking you uh, how would you play this as a fantasy owner? you are probably going to have a chance to, if you're an owner, you're going to try to sell low. If you're, if you're not an owner, would you consider buying low, especially in a situation where you might be able to hang on to him, not just for this year, but for future years in a keeper situation? Do you think there's still value to be had in Carlos Martinez or is he approaching stay away status?
4: It may depend on how you play those things as an owner. Uh, For me, uh, I, I in the keeper league, I don't like to hang on to a guy, no matter how good he's been, if he's going to miss a year. Uh, there, there, there are lots of good pitchers out there. So I would tend, I think, to sell low on Carlos Martinez and see what I can get for him when he's performing as badly as he is, especially if you've got a situation where you have to use him every week and his stats are going to count. Right now, he's killing you. Um, so uh, I would tend, I think, to sell low on Martinez. There are plenty of other good pitchers out there. Uh and as, as uh guys like Ross Stripling come out of the bullpen and become outstanding starters, there there are ways to replace Carlos Martinez on the waiver wire uh if you if you're very alert and attentive.
0: Yeah, I I agree with you. I think that if I was a Carlos Martinez owner, I'd probably just put him on my bench, presuming my league had a a benched situation that allowed that, and then hope to heck that he uh, comes up with a terrific sparkling outing and then use that to sell him that and his reputation. Especially in a keeper league, you might be able to get something saying, see, he's turning it around, but uh, I don't know. I don't think he's going to turn it around. It just looks like there's something wrong here.
4: Right, it does. It looks like there's something very wrong in this in this particular situation. And so, uh, you know, it, it may be one of those situations where you want to, to move him very carefully to someone else before they announce he's going to have to have some kind of surgery that will end the season.
0: I had a picture in my mind's eye of, uh, of sort of grabbing onto him with a pair of tongs, grabbing him by the, you know, the scruff of the neck and passing him along to the next guy. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for helping us out. It's always a pleasure, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time.
4: All right, thank you, Patrick.
0: Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst with BaseballHQ.com and for a long time has been our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show.
5: Hey PD, how you doing?
0: Doing fine. Thanks very much for asking. Uh, could say I'm doing better than Dustin Pedroia in Boston. He's been uh, out again of the lineup with inflammation in that surgically repaired knee, and it's now almost three weeks after the fact. Still no uh, estimated time of arrival for a return. Matt Dodge covers the Red Sox for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. Dustin Pedroia, three games, 11 at-bats, back on the shelf. What's Boston doing in the interim, and what's the prognosis for Dustin Pedroia?
5: Yeah, it's it's hard to say with Pedroia. I mean he's what, he's in his mid thirties now in knee surgery and now now the surgically repaired knee is suddenly on the on the fritz again. Uh Boston's gonna make this up as they go along. They've got uh Eduardo Nunez and Brock Holt uh playing a lot of second base of the two. Brock Holt is the is the has been the hottest one lately as uh as Matt points out in his playing time today. You know, piece, and, he, and he walks a little more than, uh, than Nunez de- does. Nunez is only hitting about 240. He's not having a great year. Um, but I think they're going to, like I said, make it up as they go along and play the hot hand. Uh, we, we see right now we have Nunez at 50% playing time, Brock Holt at 30, and Pedroy at 20% playing time at second base, which isn't real optimistic about his return. <laughs>
0: Yeah, uh, if actually, I would say it sounds optimistic to me that he's going to get any time at the, at the rate he's going. It just seems like whatever his problems are, they just seem to be hanging on really tough. And after a certain point, when you say to yourself, okay, this guy had a knee problem, they do surgery and it's and it's supposed to fix it. And instead, he gets a different kind of knee problem with inflammation now instead. Plus, he's got a bad back, has had that for a long time. And like you said, Boston has options at second base with Nunez, with Brock Holt, and maybe with a trade. I, I don't know. I think giving Pedroia even 20% might be optimistic.
5: Yeah, I think you're right. And if you're a fantasy owner, I mean, why, why take a chance? If you think he's going to turn around now in June with knee and back problems, I mean, I've, I've got a bridge to sell you. I mean, that that just doesn't look very optimistic.
0: I looked at the projected uh, figures for the two uh, guys we were talking about, Holt and uh, Eduardo Nunez, and uh, I like Nunez's possibilities. I know he hasn't had a great year, as you mentioned, but uh, he's got some stolen base skills. We're projecting him for 10, uh, six home runs and sort of high 20s, low 30s in runs and RBIs. And a not, un, not useless 282 batting average. Uh, again, these are, these are projections that are well out of line with what he's done so far. But uh, Eduardo Nunez may be a buy low candidate.
5: Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. If you're looking for upside from here, given how depressed his performance has been to date, and you're looking at recent performances, I would go with Nunez here, too. Um, Brock Holt is kind of a, a creature of his hit rate most of the time, and he's been soaring a little bit now, so he's due to fall back. Um, if I were If I had to make this choice, I'd go with Nunez.
0: Yeah, just so you know, uh, Brock Holt's projection is for a two forty five batting average, uh, one homer, one steal, sort of mid-teens runs and RBIs. We're not giving him a lot of playing time credit, even though he's been the hot hand. Uh, definitely Nunez looks like the guy, and like I said, he isn't playing that well, as you said as well. Maybe this is a chance to buy low and get in on the ground floor. Uh, some better news in Baltimore where Andrew Kashner has returned from the DL after missing some starts. He had a strained lower back. Uh, Matt Dodge covers the Orioles as well. How much help do you think Kashner can give the Orioles or a fantasy team, and whom will he replace in the rotation?
5: Yeah, you know, I would say not much, uh, at least from where I sit. I mean, as uh, Matt points out, uh, he'd thrown six uh pqs disasters in a row before uh, in his last or i'm sorry in his last eight starts uh, before he went on the dl and uh, he, he's just never been that great uh, this is a guy who doesn't get a lot of s- uh, swing and miss he has spotty control he gives up a ton of home runs he's pitching in a hitter friendly venue in the al east so honestly what's to like here
0: yeah, that's the question. And also hanging over this whole thing is at some point you have to believe the Orioles are going to throw in the towel, start trading their, their good players and start looking at uh, young guys coming up for the minors as potential replacements for 2019 and beyond. And a guy like Kashner, uh, the only thing you can say that might keep him in the rotation is that he would probably be nearly impossible for the Orioles to trade to anyone because nobody would want to take a chance on him.
5: Yeah, I mean, they're, like, you, like you're suggesting here, he can eat innings for a team that's out of the running, but why do you want that on your fantasy team, I guess?
0: And why do you want it if you're the team out of the running? I mean, you, you can get anybody to eat innings if you don't care about the results. I, I don't think Andrew Kashner, despite his return and, of course, we wish him well— But he's never been a really terrific fantasy pitcher. I think the peak he was about twelve dollar player back in two thousand thirteen. He turned a three oh nine ERA and a one thirteen WHIP. But since then, it hasn't been uh, that great. And uh, some five twenty fives, four thirty fives for ERAs the last few years. Yeah, I don't think uh, Andrew Kashner should be on anybody's radar. That's for sure. Now I'm very curious about your take on a very peculiar situation in Houston. The defending champions are clicking on all cylinders except they can't seem to figure out what's going on at the end of their bullpen now suddenly out of left field so to speak Hector Rondone is getting most of the save opportunities uh, and there's other candidates out there as well you took a deep dive into this in your playing time tomorrow space covering the American League West what is going on with the Houston bullpen and uh, in particular could you focus on the status of supposedly established closer Ken Giles
5: yeah, you know, if, if, if you follow the, the Astros at all, or if you watched the postseason last year, you know that uh, manager A.J. Hinch uh, didn't have a lot of confidence in Giles in that postseason. He moved him out of the closer role, and uh, the same thing is kind of happening here. The problem with Giles is he gets himself into these situations, and, and what I've noticed is that it seems to be the the elite lineups of the American League, lineups like Boston and the Yankees and Cleveland, and, and he's unable to extricate himself. Um, um it it, it's interesting he's he's kind of enigmatic uh um his his numbers i'm gonna take a look at them here his his metrics are actually down a little bit this year um they're still very good he still gets big swing and miss but his strikeouts are down he struck out almost 12 12 per nine innings last year now it's down to nine his era is up to 3.53 um expected or i'm sorry his era is up to 4.38 expected era 3.53 um it's interesting because if you go go on a game by game, uh, if you if you if you take a, a game by game approach to analyzing Giles, most of his runs have come in a few games against the clubs that I'm talking about, and uh, obviously his manager doesn't still doesn't feel comfortable uh, with him right now.
0: Yeah, I I own Ken, Ken Giles in my league, and, and uh, it it has been a case of feast and famine with him. But the problem with closers is oftentimes the entire thing depends on who has the manager's favor at a particular time. Also, we know that Houston was at least toying with the idea of doing more matching up in the later innings, and they had some other candidates in there that they could uh, throw in in the late innings, depending on what the matchup was like. I did notice the other night, though, that uh, they had uh, an eighth inning lead, and uh, they threw Giles out there in the eighth inning rather than the ninth, where where the save situation was. But the eighth inning was also where the other team's best hitters were. And so they seemed to be relying on Giles to get the important outs and then leaving Rondone to mop up with the 7 8 nine hitters or 6-7-8 hitters. And in a sort of weird backhanded way, that might have been a compliment towards Ken Giles.
5: Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. The thing that I've noticed, actually, is they seem to be giving Giles the ninth inning when they have big leads. I don't know if they're trying to... Uh, rebuild his confidence or whatever but the close games, the real close games in the ninth inning, they're putting in Hector Rondon and I'll tell you something, Hector Rondon is a really good pitcher uh, uh, you, you might recall he saved 77 games for the Cubs between uh, 2014 and 16 um, he had a bit of a blip when the Cubs were contending at the wrong time the Cubs brought in Wade Davis uh, Rondon had uh, had some problems uh, uh, a couple of years ago, he, get, he, gave, he was started to give up a few home runs that's changed this year. He's, uh, he's back to his old self. He's got a, he owns a 1.67 ERA right now. Um, his, uh, his swing and miss and 47% ground ball rate are, uh, are as good as he's ever done historically. I think he could be the closer at the end of the year. Right now, it looks like it might be between him and Giles.
0: I think that's a possibility, too. But, of course, Hector Rondon is only one bad outing from maybe losing A.J. Hinch's favor as well. And I don't know whether this is something that irritates fantasy owners, I know, but I wonder if maybe Hinch is playing it correctly and saying, you know, to to the extent I can, I'll play the hot hand. If Giles does well, he can go in there and, and get some saves if it's Rondon who's pitching well, he can go in there and get some saves. I don't think A.J. Hinch cares that much about who's getting saves. Uh, to his credit, uh, I don't think saves matter as much as uh, leverage issues and who can do the job and, and who, who can help you win the game by matching up, as I said earlier, with the strongest part of the lineup and so forth. I think if this could be a situation where A.J. Hinch is on the cutting edge to a certain degree, and that's just tough luck for everybody who's trying to figure out what's going on in the bullpen for fantasy purposes.
5: Yeah, I think you're right. I I I think one of two things is going to happen here. They're either going to have a set closer, somebody who's really doing the job by August or September, or you're going to see them do what they did last year in the postseason, and they are very likely going to go to the postseason where they'll run any one of uh, two, three arms in and out of those eighth and ninth inning situations. And you're right, that may be exactly how he wants it.
0: And as I said, tough luck for you if you're a Ken Giles owner or trying to figure out where the saves are in Houston because it figures there's going to be a lot of them. They're going to win a lot of games.
5: Yep. AJ Hinch doesn't care about your fantasy team,
0: nor should he, uh, staying in the bullpen this time in Kansas city. I talked earlier with Nick uh, during our national league market watch coverage about the impact in that league of former Kansas city closer, Kelvin Herrera being traded to Washington for a package of minor leaguers, but that still leaves Kansas city trying to figure out what they're going to do at the back end of their bullpen.
5: Yeah, it does. And, um, Honestly, uh, Kansas City is one of those teams. Again, it's such a bad team. I haven't followed them that closely. Their bullpen hasn't been that good. And I'm looking at the names right now that everybody's touting to uh, to replace uh, Kelvin uh, Kelvin Herrera and Kevin McCarthy, Tim Hill, Brandon Maurer, Brad Keller. They all show up on our team playing time percent percentage grids at having a shot at saves. Um, none of these guys appear to have closer worthy skill sets. And Kansas City's so bad right now. This is a situation I'd probably avoid even in start-over leagues. The Royals just aren't going to win that many games, and there are better options out there on other teams. I I think the Royals' next legitimate long-term closer isn't likely to be on this current list.
0: I understand what you're saying about that, Jock, but at the same time, we have to recognize that if the saves category in your league is particularly close – you know, if you can figure out which one of these guys is going to pick up three or four saves or, or five or six saves down the stretch, even if that's all, they only win five or six games the whole rest of the season, you want those five or six saves because, they, you know, it can make a difference between getting five points in the category or getting seven.
5: Yeah, it's interesting, but you look at the stats and which of these names do you think is the most likely to pick up four or five saves? I just, I just don't know right now.
0: I'd have to say I I like McCarthy's chances the best so far, but uh, because I think Hill's a better pitcher. But he's the left-hander, and they don't have a lot of left-handed options if they need to play matchups in the later innings. Um, There's a guy called Trevor Oaks, I think, has had some leverage appearances. Uh, Brandon Moore has some closing experience. He's been injured a lot of the year. It's really hard to say. One of those situations where maybe you you sign them all in your free agent pool and then reserve them all except for the guy who seems to be getting the ball most often.
5: Yeah, it's it's interesting. My my take is I will probably start watching this situation now. I'm fortunate in the leagues that I'm in that my that my saves are pretty well taken care of. But uh, now you're right. I I hear what you're saying. Um, I just I look at, for example, the Kevin McCarthy, and I look at that 5.5 uh, strikeouts per nine rate and think, okay, what happens if he has a week where batters are hitting or making hard contact against him and what's he going to do to my era and my whip and, and is it worth the trouble yeah i just uh, i'm at a loss here
0: that's an interesting point though because uh, kevin mccarthy has a, a relatively low strikeout rate and of course we all want that uh, higher strikeout rate because we want the strikeouts first of all but because the Tends to tie to a, a lower ERA, but not always. In Kansas City, um, of course, this is before the current regime. But Kansas City had some experience with a guy who had a strikeout rate, I think, of three point something per nine innings. And Dan Quisenberry wasn't a bad closer.
5: Now that's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, and and when you're talking short term, and we're down now, we're down to almost just three months left in the season. Pretty much anything can happen over a over a short time frame.
0: Lastly, the Angels, your favorite team, finally got some good news after a month of nothing but injuries. Andrelton Simmons returns to the lineup ahead of schedule. He must be pleased about that. He only missed 11 days, and I think we thought more like two to six weeks with that ankle sprain initially declared as a grade two sprain. And uh, Cole Calhoun also back in the lineup after missing about three weeks with his oblique problem. Uh, What do those playing time situations look like in Anaheim with these two guys returning?
5: Well, Simmons is obviously going to plug right back into the shortstop spot, particularly given that his return uh, coincides with a Zach Cozart DL stint due to shoulder problems. Uh, nothing to worry about with Simmons. He was in the middle of a breakthrough season on the BA front, and at least some of which I think look sustainable going forward. The more interesting question is Is Calhoun. Uh, Calhoun's had a really rough year. Uh, he hasn't hit anything Part of it is due to a an awful 19% hit rate. Now, he's changed his setup at the plate. He's changed his swing path just slightly. He looks a lot better coming back. He's got a hit in each of the games that uh, um, he's played. Uh, he didn't strike out at all on a brief minor league um, um, uh, rehab, and that was part of his problem. He was only making 70% contact. Um, the Angels better hope Calhoun improves, because neither Michael, Michael Hermosillo or Jabari Blash look like an answer. Um, Chris Young the the backup outfielder had been struggling all year along with Calhoun he he got hot in the last week and a half but now all of a sudden he's saw hobbling as well with, with what I think's a hammy he may go on the DL pretty soon um, so Calhoun has a has a clear uh, pay, uh, path to playing time again he'll he'll reclaim his right field job uh, I think he's going to be better than he was I don't see how he could be worse um, the question is how much
0: I own Jeffrey Marte in my American League only. Uh, any chance that he has any kind of impact between now and the end of the season?
5: I think only, only as an emergency, at least in the outfield. Um, I, I probably like Marte more than I should, but the problem is he's, as a defender out there, he's just awful. And, and I don't think they would ever put him in, 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 a, in the uh, right field spot uh, for any, any extended playing time period.
0: I was wondering about the DH slot, but I think last time we talked about the Angels, the expectation was that Albert Pujols would take over pretty much full-time DHing to take the load off his feet, and that uh, because Shohei Otani is probably done for the year, uh, would there be any playing time for anybody at first base then?
5: Yeah, I mean, that's a real good question. They can't put Pujols ho- out there at first base uh, every day. Um, I think, um, I, I think Marte could get some time at first base. A lot of it depends on what uh, Jose Miguel Fernandez does, the Cuban import who, uh, who has called up and actually been pretty good uh, early on. He hasn't hit for much power, but he's hit 276 uh, in 29 plate appearances so far. He does have a little pop, I, and he's a left-handed bat, so I think the Angels want to see what he does as well. So it's still a little bit tight for Marte at the, uh, at the infield corners and DH as well.
0: Last time I watched an Angels game, they were beating the uh, Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, Justin Anderson got the save. Uh, We could talk about the bullpen in in Los Angeles as well because it seems to be in flux. But uh, Luis Valbuena hit a home run. Uh, Where does Luis Valbuena fit in with all of these adjustments?
5: Well, Valbuena's biggest problem is, I think right now, if I'm not mistaken, and I would have to look, he has eight home runs for the year. He's had two two-home run games, so that tells you that his power has been very inconsistent and few and far between. He's only hitting about 220. Um, he's in the final year of a contract. He's still a decent defender, but, boy, the, the holes in his swing, his poor batting average, and his inconsistent power. I honestly think that is uh, a better candidate to be uh, DFA'd sometime uh, in, in July or August than, uh, than a candidate for more playing time than he has now.
0: Okay, in 30 seconds or less, uh, who's getting the saves?
5: Oh, Blake Parker
0: hasn't looked that sharp the last couple of games.
5: No, um, he hasn't. He goes up and down, and his his is more opportunity, but he's not as he's not as wild as Justin Anderson is. Uh, um, the last game Parker pitched, uh, he pitched two innings. I think he struck out four hitters. He gave up a two-run homer. I, I think the two-run homer was in his second inning. Uh, um, the problem right now that Mike Sosha has is he's using these guys in all kinds of different roles right now, and he's overusing some of them, and I think that might have uh, contributed to to um, some of Parker's issues. But you're right. He's, he's kind of a volatile guy. He's up and down. I still think he's probably the Angels' best option.
0: All right, Jock, thanks very much for helping us out. We especially appreciate the uh, home team take on the uh, Los Angeles Angels, and we'll catch up with you again next week.
5: Okay, P.D., see you.
0: Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ's Director of News and Analysis, and he writes regularly for the site, and of course he's our man on the American League beat for Baseball HQ Radio. When we return our Baseball HQ commentaries, we have the Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and Pitcher Matchups all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. But right now, time in the show, and I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say with confidence that BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our Facts and Fluke Spotlight, analyst Ryan Bloomfield. You remember Ryan, he used to be on this show. He takes a deep-dive look at Reds third baseman Eugenio Suarez. In From A to Zinke, columnist Fred Zinke evaluates some of this season's late-round surprises, including Nick Marcakis and Tyler Skaggs, among many others. And in Playing Time Tomorrow, analyst Brandon Cruz looks at the American League Central, including a possible six-man rotation in Detroit, the return of Adalberto Mondesi to Kansas City, some rotation changes in Minnesota with the pending return of Irvin Santana, and more. And those are just three articles among literally dozens. Just a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. And why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have the frequent flyer and our pitcher matchups report. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a look at Houston right-handed pitching prospect Forrest Whitley is Baseball HQ Minor League's analyst Rob Gordon.
6: The Houston Astros might be the best-run franchise in the majors. Over the past five years, they've built a deep and talented roster by identifying, drafting, and developing elite-level talent. The bulk of that talent is already in the majors and played a critical role in winning the 2017 World Series, but the Astros still have several impact prospects who should be ready for the majors in the near future. Whitley, the 17th overall pick in the 2016 draft, finally made his 2018 debut after sitting out the first 50 games for violating the minor league drugs of abuse policy. In two double-A starts, the 20-year-old Whitley has yet to allow an earned run, giving up just five hits and three walks while striking out 18 in 12 innings. Whitley overpowers hitters with a plus 92 to 97 mile an hour fastball that has good late life and sink. He backs up the heater with a plus 12 to 6 curveball, a slider, and a changeup that has good late fade but needs to be more consistent. Not only does Whitley have a plus 4 pitch mix, but fantasy owners should be salivating over his career 13.6 dominance rate and 1.18 whip. Given his late start to the season and the incredible depth of the Astros' starting rotation, Whitley will most likely have to wait for 2019 to make his MLB debut. But when he does, fantasy owners in all formats should consider rostering this dynamic young hurler who could challenge for a strikeout title down the road. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon.
0: Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week's prospect coverage includes our recent daily call-ups reports on Texas right-hander Ricardo Rodriguez, Miami right-hander Brett Graves, and Yankees right-hander Jonathan Loisica, as well as all the other recent call-ups, And in the eyes have it, scouting analyst Chris Blessing looks at three Royals prospects playing in single-A Lexington. First baseman Nick Prado, outfielder Sully Matias, and catcher MJ Melendez. These days, knowing the prospects can mean the difference in winning our leagues, and Baseball HQ has the prospect tools you can use to make that difference. Now it's time for our frequent flyer commentary, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool, and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's frequent flyer is Detroit starting pitcher Alex Faieto, and here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky.
7: Don't look now, but former college World Series hero and 22-year-old former first-round draft pick Alex Fiedo is quickly moving through the Detroit Tigers organization. Selected by Detroit in the first round, 18th overall in 2017, Alex Fiedo is already advanced to double-A his first year of professional baseball, and he figures prominently into the Tigers' current overhaul. So far, he's been nothing short of outstanding, using pinpoint control to strike out 58 batters and 67 innings pitched in 2018. For those of you keeping score at home, that translates to a dominance rate of 7.8 strikeouts per nine, just slightly higher than the 7 strikeouts per nine benchmark that we use at BaseballHQ.com to identify baseball's best pitchers. Of course, it might be too early to discuss Alex Fajardo's inclusion in that category, since his 13 professional starts represent a very, very small sample size. That's why Alex Faedo, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Nevertheless, producing a 309 ERA and exhibiting excellent control to the tune of a 2 walks per game equivalent, falling slightly below our control ratio expectations of 2.8 walks per game or less, is really, really good. Plus, let's not forget that Alex Fayeto is developing quite an arsenal. With a fastball that can touch high 90s, as shown in last year's College World Series, where Alex Fajardo was named as the most outstanding College World Series player for 2017, along with a plus slider and a decent changeup, Alex Fajardo appears to be poised for eventual success at the big league level. But first, he'll have to earn his Tiger Stripes at A Erie. In what may become somewhat of an eerie coincidence, Alex Fajardo's high 90s fastball from 2017 appears to have vanished in 2018. Maybe he's just working on developing his secondary offerings. Maybe he was just amped up by pitching for the Florida Gators in the College World Series. Maybe it's nothing to worry about. Tigers GM Al Avila, quoted recently in the Detroit Free Press, said that although he can't explain why Alex Faedo's fastball velocity has dropped, he's not concerned. The reason I say we're not concerned, Avila explained, is because he's got his full arsenal of pitches. He's not walking, guys. He's pitching as he's always pitched. When the velocity does come back, it will make him even more effective, according to Avila. That pinpoint control and that slider and the way he pitches, that's what makes him a real good pitcher. That's also what makes Alex Faedo a real good frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for pitcher matchups. The matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero with starts higher than plus 0.5 rated as strong starts, starts rated at minus 0.51 or worse rated weak starts, and those in between considered judgment calls. Here with a scan of Arizona right-hander Zach Greinke in Pittsburgh to face right-hander Jamison Tyon, as well as other weekend matchups, is Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick.
8: Our streak stays alive this weekend as our marquee matchup is again the only one in which both starting pitchers have matchup ratings in the strong start range of 0.5 or above. The game is on Sunday in Pittsburgh's pitcher-friendly PNC Park. The Pirates put 26-year-old right-hander Jameson Tyone on the hill with a matchup rating of 0.54. The visiting Arizona Diamondbacks counter with 34-year-old right-hander Zach Grenke, who has a matchup rating of 102. The D-backs remain atop the National League West Division standings with a run differential of plus 47, 6th in the National League, and 9th in the Majors. They are seven games above 500 overall, and all even on the road. Against teams below 500. the Snakes have won eight more games than they've lost. The Bucks Run differential of plus two is 15th in MLB and ninth in the National League. In the National League Central, Pittsburgh is in fourth place at one game under 500. At home, the Pirates are four games over 500. Versus teams at are above 500, they are below 500 by 10 games. Advantage: Arizona. In his June 16 analysis, BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Buyer's Guide guru Stephen Nickran noted that Tyon is, quote, one split away from converting his rotation anchor upside into results, unquote. When facing right-handed hitters, Tyone has a BPV or base performance value of 183. Against left-handed hitters, Tyone has a BPV of only 26, 157 points lower than versus right-handed hitters. With up to 6 left-handed hitters in its starting lineup, that gives Arizona another advantage. Still, there are some good reasons for Tyone's matchup rating being in the strong start range at 054. Remember our recommendation to concentrate on improving your ratio categories between Memorial Day and the All-Star break? Tyone has component matchup ratings of 062 for ERA and 094 in whip. He can help you in both of those traditional ratio categories. What's more, in eight PNC Park starts this season, Tyone has four PQS decent efforts and all three of his PQS dominant outings. Outside of his one PQS disaster at home against the Detroit Tigers in game one of a doubleheader on April 25, Tyone's average PQS score in his seven other home starts is 3.3. Zach Grenke's home humidor didn't help him in his PQS disaster start against these same Pittsburgh Pirates only 10 days ago on June 13. Tyone and the Bucks beat Grenke and the D-backs in that one. In fact, only one of Grenke's five PQS dominant starts has been on the road. And that was back on April 13. Excluding his PQS one in Colorado, Grenke's average road PQS score in six other outings is just 2.3. Though Grenke has the higher season-long BPV at 139 to Tyone's 117, over the past 31 days, Tyone's BPV of 149 is 47 points better than Grenke's 102. For both the ERA and whip ratio categories, though, Zach Grenke has composite ratings above 1 with an ERA rating of 113 and a whip rating of 156. Excluding Granke, ten other starting pitchers have ERA component ratings above one, and nine of those also have whip component ratings above one. Three big surprises among those nine starters are Andrew Suarez of the Giants and Sonny Gray and Domingo Herman of the Yankees. At the other end of the spectrum, there's a Baker's dozen minimum matchup ratings to load your lineups against. Two of the six worst matchup ratings belong to Texas Rangers starters heading into Target Field to face the hometown Twins Saturday and Sunday. Giovanni Gallardo gets a matchup rating of minus 157 for his second start of 2018. Since 2014, he has not had a whip under 142. Bartolo Colon may have more wins than any other Latin American pitcher, but over the past 31 days, he also has a whip of 179. His matchup rating is minus 102. That combination of starters should lead to a big weekend for Twins hitters. To recap our recommendations, marquee matchup men Jameson Tyone and Zach Grenke both should help you across the board. If your ratio categories need extra attention, study our exclusive component matchup ratings for ERA and WIP. There you can find help from unexpected sources such as Andrew Suarez, Sonny Gray, and Domingo Herman. And check our site to get updated matchup information every day. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick has our weekend
0: pitcher matchups right here at Baseball HQ Radio during the season every week. When we return, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Jason Collette from RotoWire wire and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. That's coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. <laughs>
2: What's the guy's name on first base? No, what is on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? One base at a time. Well, don't change the plan. I'm not changing nobody, I'm it easy, buddy. I'm only asking you who's the guy on first base? That's right. Okay. All right. I mean, what's the guy's name on first no, base? No, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on who's second. Who's on first? I don't know. Oh, he's on third. We're not talking about him. Now, let's <laughs> How did I get on third base? Why, you mentioned his name. If I mentioned a third baseman's name, who did I say is playing third? No, who's playing first? What's on first? What's on second? I don't know. He's on third. There I go back like, on third again. <laughs> Baseball
0: HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Jason Collette from roto and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Jason, welcome back. Thanks, man. You wrote in your Colette Calls column about how Aaron Judge is being victimized by catcher framing of pitches. What's your evidence for that assertion?
1: So one of the things, often when we see on Twitter, we see fans react to things. And, and there was a particular, uh, one of the Yankee writers, I'll just say her first name is Stacey because I, I, I cannot properly pronounce her last name. I'll brutalize So I'm just going to say Stacey. She always said, I'm tired of watching Aaron Judge get bad strike calls. And so I saw it enough where I was like, I got to go look at this and see what's going on. And sure enough, he was leading the league and strikes looking above average on pitches that were outside of the rule book strike zone. So I go into the, 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 true media data and look and say, okay, show me how many pitches that Aaron judge or anybody else is having called strikes on them that are outside the rule book strike zone. And he was number one on the list. Uh, Matt Olson was number two. And when I pull the data as of today, Aaron Judge is still number one. Ironically, the guy we just talked about, Paul Goldschmidt, is now number two. But Aaron Judge is still number one, and he's got the strikes looking above average. Uh, the highest score at the uh, 38 strikes looking above average uh, than everybody else. So it's uh, you know, we we don't expect umpires to be perfect all the time, uh, but Aaron Judge is certainly the highest. Uh, he's getting a lot of those improper calls, and I tried to figure out. Like, why is that? I mean, we, when we think of Aaron Judge, he stands with that open stance as he starts out. And he's so tall, and he stands back away from the plate, and then he strides in as he goes for the baseball. And I'm wondering, because he stands with that open stance, because as I look at the pitches that he's getting called for strikes against him that are outside the zone, there are pitches both inside and outside and down. not Nothing up. That's what the, I, what my, my original thought was, okay, because he's tall, he's getting victimized up, but he's not getting victimized on the high strike. It's in, it's out, it is down. Uh, The down part, I don't know what you could do about pitcher catcher framing. It's just really good these days. But for a righty of his size to be victimized on pitches on the inside part of the plate, I think that's part of it. Part of that is just the way his open stance is, because it just presents that nice big frame for the umpire to look at. Uh, I don't know if it's curable, uh, because like I said, he's still he's still in the lead here. But uh, as well as Aaron Judge is doing, he's uh, definitely not getting favors from the umpires.
0: Well, you did note the judge at the time Matt Olson was in second place. You mentioned Paul Goldschmidt; he's these are all pretty tall guys. Uh, Goldschmidt, I think, goes six three. Uh, judge is six six or six seven, something like that. Olson's a pretty big cat as well. Could it be that the umpires, because the batters are so tall, and the umpire is a relatively um, locked in position-wise in, in his crouch? Could it be that he's inferring that a ball down in the strike zone is a strike because that it always is a strike, even though for a tall guy it's below his knees, for an average-sized guy it isn't, and he can't actually see the bottom of the strike zone, so the umpire has to uh, rely on p- pitches he's seen over his career, that kind of thing?
1: It definitely could be. I mean, the, the funny thing was when I wrote the article, John Jay, who's who's no giant, uh, was had the third most. Uh, uh, called strikes that were uh, out of the zone against him so that kind of blew away my theory of okay it's it's you're tall and that's why you're being penalized uh, but still uh, it, you know judges that normally tall but it, it, that could definitely be an issue with the uh, with the umpires because there are some umpires we got big catchers these days and there are some umpires that are that are on the short side I'm drawing a blank on there's one particular umpire uh, who's the shortest i think he's like five eight or five nine so you take a tall catcher and he's squatting down and then you've got an umpire squat now there's no way he's going to be able to see over the top down there so uh he's got to make his best assumptions on on some of those low strike calls
0: you also checked swing percentage uh, the theory i guess being that batters who take a lot of pitches in general just open themselves up to getting hosed by bad calls by umpires how did the uh the fact that Swing percentages on guys like uh, Judge are lower than normal. How did that hypothesis hold up?
1: Uh didn't really hold up. I, I just, Like I said, I, I tried to look through, and you know, the swing rate, some guys were high. Like Judge had a swing rate of 36%, but then John Jay had a 47% swing rate. So there wasn't really any strong correlation there.
0: Moving out to take a wider view when it comes to strike zone metrics like taking versus swinging and contact versus not. Obviously, we want guys who swing in the zone and take out of the zone. But what are the characteristics that fantasy owners need to understand about guys like Judge who are taking strikes in the zone?
1: Uh, sometimes that comes down to count. I, mean, I, I don't know if batters always have green light in three zero counts. Because one of the other things I looked at is okay, is he getting these calls in three zero? But there's not that many three zero auto strike calls that are going against judge for me when i look at some of these batters from a fantasy perspective i want to see the guys that are able to make the contact in the zone and when we look here you, know, you can go to the fan graph leaderboards and take a look at the uh, z contact what's their what's their their contact rate within the strike zone? are they struggling on those types of pitches so when i that's one of the first things i try to go look at when i look at the uh, like goldschmidt earlier when they're struggling, let's go look at his zone. As he's swinging and missing within the strike zone, when he has to, when he knows the strike is coming, uh, and he's swinging and missing in pitches that are coming through the strike zone, uh, sometimes to me that points out an injury. Uh, that if a guy has a big drop down in that area, something's wrong uh, physically, and so that's what I try to look at. And then if they're uh, how they, how are they handling pitches out of the zone? Are they spitting on those, or are they? Ex- expanding their zone as they're trying to press for things, uh, which is something I saw when I looked at Marcelo Zuna as well. Uh, So those are are the two metrics I like to look at when I'm trying to take a look at how batters, why a batter is, is doing exceedingly well or exceedingly poorly.
0: What are the possible compensating factors for hitters when we look at them as fantasy owners who do tend to swing outside the zone? Is there anything they can do to compensate for that seeming weakness?
1: Be fast. (laughs) <laughs> so, I mean, if you're swinging something outside the strike zone, uh, often that's going to lead to suboptimal contact. You can get some soft contact, you know, the swinging bumps, uh, different types of things, but that's really what it comes down to. If you've got a slow player swinging the stuff out of the strike zone, uh, it's not going to be as good as a, as, as a faster player because they can put that ground ball into play and try to beat that out. Uh, some guys have made a career out of being bad ball hitters like that, uh, but typically once that behavior is locked in, it doesn't go away. Um, and but if I have to have a guy like that, I want a guy fast, so when that uh, poor contact gets in the field, he's got a chance of beating it out.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jason Collette from RotoWire wire and the Sleeper in the Bus podcast. Uh, you have an active Twitter feed, at Jason Collette. I'll mention it's all one word with two L's and two T's. There's some kind of country singer or something, a Canadian guy, that if they don't get all the L's and T's, they're going to get the wrong guy.
1: Oh, it's the E at the end. Don't leave the E at the end off. That's how you get the independent Canadian musician.
0: Okay, and and uh, well, give him a look too. Maybe maybe you'll like his music. Uh, you keep your Twitter follower base up to date on goings-on with the Tampa Rays in particular. Uh, what have been your impressions so far about the utility of these opener games or bullpen games, whatever they're calling it, or you, you raised a term pre-leaf appearances that the Jays have been trying. Is it working? How do you like it?
1: I actually like it. It, it. I think there's ways for them to improve it. Uh, you know, when you you have, I think it's worked really well for Ryan Stanick. I mean, he's looked great, and his, the way he's come out and being able to throw like that. So I just think it's a matter of, like, I in my perfect world, I would have like a Ryan Stanek open it. And then I would have Nate Eovaldi come in and throw to 18 guys and then get out and have somebody else go to it. They've got a bunch of guys that, uh, that have options. They could be cycling the the, the Durham, the Tampa Bay shuttle, uh, and have them go through. But I think the, the outings have been effective. I think the, the problem is that because they've, had, they've had the issues with the injuries and they haven't been able to have enough actual starters on the roster. So they're having to do these bullpen games more often than they really want to. And I mentioned it with Ivaldi, with some of the earned runs of late. They've had to extend him in outings knowing the very next day is going to be one of these bullpen dies, uh, bullpen days. So if they could get that extra inning uh, from him, that means that's one, one more inning of relief they could use the next day. And so that's what really the give and take of this that's unfortunate uh in that regard because it it's it's kind of forced them to extend their actual starting pitchers um and to preserve relievers for these relief days
0: do you think it's sustainable over the longer run and could teams especially teams that are facing uh constraints on salary because they don't have the revenues to go out and compete when uh for instance uh, um the top pitchers come into the free agent market. We know that Kansas City's not going to be bidding. We know Tampa's not going to be bidding. There's lots of teams in that predicament, but there have been articles and analyses that suggest that doing something like this and figuring out ways to maximize the utility of guys whose weakness is third time through or fourth time through, uh, guys who can really um, have tremendous platoon advantages, all of these kind of machinations that would allow a team with limited resources to compete by using intelligence rather than pure skill. Do you think it's going to ever be a sustainable model, especially at the big league level?
1: I think it's something that could be used a little more. I don't know if you could use it like three times through a rotation that Tampa Bay has had to do of, recent, uh, of late. But, you know, if you look at the quality of the fifth starter for a lot of clubs, it's not quality. And so, would you want to, you could start there and turn that every fifth day into Johnny Bullpen Day. And I think the best utilization of this is when uh, the race were facing the Angels, who are a very heavy right-handed lineup. And they used Romo on back to back days, and it worked very well because Romo is very good against righties. Uh, and that's how they got that game started off. And, and so if you can force your, if you can force your opponent to alter their lineup early, if you're heavy right, and like, okay, here, I'm bringing my, I'm bringing my Rugi in. He's coming in to the face, and we can get through that first, uh, those first couple of innings. Because again, that, you know, that first, that first ending is a tough ending because you're facing the best part of the lineup. Uh, and then even in the first and second, you're still facing the that. So if you can get your best matchup to get through the first two, you you've given yourself, you've especially if you're on the road, you've offset that that home field advantage uh, because, again, the, the home team wins 56% of the games. So you're trying to get back uh, some of that high ground there. And I, I like this. I, I know that the, some people look at it and, and, and say they're trying to change the way the labor market uh, the, the, arbitration cases are going to work. So like, well, hey, he didn't relieve. He only relieved so many games. He started some of these and his numbers were subpar compared to a starter. I'd like to believe that the team is doing this in good faith. And they're not the only team. And Kansas City has tried this too. I'd like to think that teams are doing this in good faith because they recognize, hey, we have quality issues in the back of our rotation. But if we can, Johnny Bullpen is better than Johnny Smith, uh, in, as, as our Fred
5: starter.
0: Yeah, and when you look at how the teams are increasingly using players who have minor league options, you could even see a situation down the road where the team could start rotating players from their minor league uh, affiliates up in, bring them for a game or two, send them back to and let the other guy rest. And let the minor league team worry about it as far as their uh, depth of uh, of their pitching staffs. It, it just seems like there's a potential here for a real sea change in how baseball works on this side, and I don't think it's going to go over real popular with the sort of casual baseball fan who goes out and starts seeing what starts to look an awful lot like a basketball lineup. Yeah, it, but one of
1: the things I try to think about is how do you condition, how do you get guys ready for this from the minor leagues. But if you go back, if you if you watch minor league baseball, you know down at the lower levels, these guys are pitching on pitch count. So they're almost doing these types of games anyhow. A number of uh, organizations have done tandem starters where, hey, this guy's pitching 50, this guy's pitching 50, and then we'll spill it out with the rest of the relievers. Uh, it, it's, it's unusual. You don't see a lot of minor league starting pitchers going that sixth or seventh inning. That's usually a five and dive and let's go. Uh, you look at a minor league box score. You're always, you you typically see five relievers, uh, five pitchers pitch that nine inning game. So this is not that much of a stretch uh, from that. Uh, it's just really one extra pitcher. Sometimes some of these Johnny bullpen games have been six guys, uh, and I think where guys that have that issue with the times through the order that they're no that they're progressively worse, this is one of the ways that make those guys better. I think yeah, I, I brought up Ivaldi. Matt Andres is another guy that has those times of the order penalty, and using him one time through uh, could be good uh, for him, whereas leaving him out as a starter and letting him see increased exposure is, is going to hurt his numbers.
0: And we know, uh, uh, or at least I think we know, that one of the – um, markers for pitcher injury is is having to go into stressful situations rather than just pure pitch counts, and maybe getting a pitcher out of the game before he starts flagging and starts really having to muscle up and try to push balls past guys on that third time through the order. If you just say to your pitchers who are especially prone to arm trouble, look, two times through and you're done. So give it give it what you got for those 18 hitters or or however many it takes to you know get through that comfortably, and and we'll, then we'll take the ball away from you and we'll give it to somebody else. With a view towards extending their overall career, because they don't face those high stress innings, those high stress pitching situations that research has suggested are really causative in in creating arm trouble.
3: Exactly,
1: exactly. Uh, and but if, if, so if guys are if they're uh, set up for this, so we can say, okay, look, this is how we're going to use you, and you know that you're going to these are the days you need to be ready. Because even some, if you look at some of the relief usage now. Some guys are only used in low leverage situations okay the game's blown out you're our long reliever go and so you're sitting around pitching once every five six days maybe you know there was a joke today uh aj cole got put on the disabled list i don't think he's pitched in two and a half weeks so you could almost put him on the disabled list retroactively and then bring him back tomorrow because he's barely pitched because the yankees have been doing so well uh to that point so it's, it's a matter of I think these guys would be better off if they had that regular usage um, out of the bullpen rather than the standard models of you're our high leverage guy, you're our games tied come in, in the sixth inning, and you're our mop up guy we're in a blowout in the fourth
0: yes, and it certainly could create a whole new category of players who are effective pitchers, namely those who can pitch three or four times a week for two innings at a time rather than you know twice every every seven days or whatever these current restrictions are. And there must be guys out there like that. Uh, let's move on. Uh, earlier in the week, you said it seems obvious the Rays are trying to trade a Dainey Hechevaria. Of course, the Rays are not going to be in the playoffs by all accounts. What makes you think Hechevaria is one of the guys on the block?
1: Well, they've called Willie Adamas up to stay up uh, at this point. He's not going back down. And Willie Adamas is their shortstop of the future, and that's and they don't want him to stay on, sit on the bench. And with Edgiboria, he's in the final year of his deal. Yes, he's a good defensive player. Yes, he's a terrible hitter uh, who can make a lot of contacts, spoil some pitches. But his value is defense. And if you want something for nothing. Eventually, they're going to move him here for somebody that's not on the on the forty man roster, or they may be a player to be named later, cash considerations. But they want Adamas to play. And so right now they're going to keep Echeverria. They'll use them. They'll get lefties. They'll do something. Uh, but that's, you can see that the youth movement's coming. And they've got, they have a lot of these types of guys. Matt Duffy has played very well at third base. Uh, you've got Adamas. You've got Christian Arroyo, who has played short, third, and second. Uh, they let Brad Miller go because he couldn't catch a cold and they could not find a defensive home for him. Uh, and the, the organization. Playing simple values defense. That's why Carlos Gomez is still on the roster. Carlos Gomez can't hit really, but he is still an excellent defensive right fielder. At one point, he was leading the league in defensive runs saved out there in right field uh, as of a couple of weeks ago. So, if you want to play for this uh, organization, you better be able to play some defense, and that's and that's why they wanted Echeverria to begin with. But they're not going to resign him. Uh, I was honestly surprised that they offered him arbitration because I thought they would have traded him last winter knowing here's comes the Domus. we can find a cheaper option to play shortstop for the time being but they decided to go this route and now they're going to they'll trade him I don't think they'll get as much as they would have this offseason uh but there's some there's definitely value in, in and that's glove
0: Any other guys on the Rays you think are going to be on the block what about Chris Archer
1: I don't know. The thing about Chris Archer is, it's the contract. He—I don't know if people understand. He's getting paid like a middle reliever coming in the start. Uh, you know, he was due thirty-three million dollars over the next four seasons coming into the start of this season, and those numbers don't get much higher year by year. So, a four-year thirty-three million-dollar contract for a uh, an above-average starting pitcher is just too tough to move because oh, we're not in contention. Yeah, you know, who cares? Because that that contract gives them the financial flexibility to do some of the other things that they're that they're trying to do. I mean, obviously they, they want to get the new ballpark. Uh, people point to them to being cheap, but you also one of my one of my pain points is okay, yes, they're being cheap, but at the same time, you also don't want them asking for a lot of public money to pay for the next stadium. So if they're going to fund more of the new stadium out of their own pockets, and if, there's, if they're saving money from the product on the field in order to pay for the next new stadium, that will then fund what's going on. You see, you know, then I'm fine with it. Uh, you know, you see what's going on with Atlanta's resurgence right now. Yes, they have the new stadium, uh, but that you know that's really taking a hit on the the local uh, folks. They're ma- they're already having to make cuts uh, in, the, in the in the county government budget because of what they have to pay off for that stadium that they do. Uh, and that's why when they have that new stadium, you want to see. The owners put as much into that situation as possible so the localities don't have to pay uh, what they're paying in some of these other stadium deals, like what happened in Miami and what happened in Atlanta.
0: Amen to that. Uh, You mentioned uh, Willie Adamas is off to a good start and looks very promising. Uh, the, The Rays also called up their first base prospect, Jake Bowers, who's looked really good so far, not at all overmatched. What are your short and long term expectations of these two fine young prospects?
1: I think both guys are are slightly above average uh, players. I don't think either is an all star uh, at any point in their career. Maybe they'll make an appearance, but I think they're I think they are like fifty five uh sixty players on that twenty to eighty scale. Uh, you know for me uh, uh, like as a right now, if you watch him play there there are some inconsistencies in the field. Uh, for him that he's got to work on I've been really impressed with Bowers and his abilities uh, in the field particularly I guess what you had to watch Brad Miller play first base all year uh, Jake Bowers is going to look a lot better and he certainly has but I've been impressed with his skills at the plate because he's making a lot of good contact he stays in there against lefties uh, and they're not giveaway at bats uh, like his predecessor was um, there but I don't think Jake Bowers ever hits I don't think he ever hits for more than 25 home runs. And if you're talking about a first baseman, that's obviously going to put a cap on his value. I mean, they had him playing in the outfield in the minor leagues, um, but I think his future here with the club right now is going to be a first base. And then uh, Adamas could definitely stick a shortstop, but I think at his peak he's a 15-home run guy that hits uh, 275 and runs some too. So, um, yeah, I don't – again, some people are like, oh, hey, where's the level of these guys? Actually, I think if you look at the race system, they've got better guys coming up from the minor leagues that people can be more excited about long term. It's very, it's a deeper organization. It's one of the top three or four. You look at a lot of the prospect rankings as far as organizations, but a lot of that is not at AAA yet. It's coming up. It's in Port Charlotte. Yeah, it's in Montgomery. It's in Bowling Green. Those guys are starting to come. Uh, yeah, I think Brendan McKay is right there at the top of that list.
0: Is he the guy that pitches and plays the uh, plays position?
1: Yep, that's him.
0: Can he do it at the major league level?
1: Uh, I certainly think that they drafted him for that reason. They told him they were going to allow him the opportunity. He's been doing it at the minor leagues. He's been doing extremely well on the pitching side uh, down the, in the lower level. So this is one of the, this is one of the things they wanted to do. Uh, and, and he, you know, he comes from an advanced college program. Uh, so I don't know how long we'll have to wait uh, for him to get to the major league level. Obviously, with him starting last year, you have the three years. And so he's got to be added to the 40-man roster. Uh, It's not like the old days where they just gave out guaranteed Major League deals to draft picks, and so those guys had to come up. Um, But I think I'm holding out hope that we see him sometime in 2019 at the Major League level.
0: One last question about the Rays. A while ago, you noted they have lost three pretty good pitching prospects to Tommy John surgery this year, Jose DeLeon, Brent Honeywell, and most recently Anthony Banda. And by the way, Anthony Banda, one Major League win, he was on my team in the American League tout at the time he got the win, so yay for me. Uh, tough news for Anthony Banda, though.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you outbid me for that one too.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of suspected you would be uh, you would be in on Anthony Banda when he got uh, called up. How likely is it that this problem with Tommy John surgery affecting three guys in one organization is related to the fact that they're in the organization? Is something going on with the way they're preparing their pitchers, or is it just? Three guys who happen to get uh, fall into this problem uh, having nothing to do with the fact they're in the Tampa organization.
1: Well, heading into the season, if you go, if you look at Joe uh, Rogelli's Tommy John database list online, uh, the Rays had one of the lowest Tommy John rates for all organizations. I think uh, over the history of tracking, I think they were at 42. It was one of the four lowest. I remember looking that up. But then when you look at these three, three pitchers in particular, only Honeywell had been raised by the organization. I mean, DeLeon came in the trade with Logan Forsythe from the Dodgers. Uh, there was a reason why Jose DeLeon was made available by the Dodgers because you know, three years ago he was a top-two prospect in their organization, and then he dropped down to 30. Uh, and so there were issues with injuries with him, so that's why the Rays were able to get that, kind of that a former top prospect at a discount because there was injury risks, and, and with Bonda you, he came out of the Arizona uh, organization and had had his own uh, issues there. So with those two guys, and uh, especially with Bonda because he just came over from Arizona this offseason. and uh, and De León, while he's been in the organization a uh, year and a half now, uh, he didn't even pitch that much the previous year because of injuries as well. So that that's I discount both those guys with Honeywell. I don't know. I I just think, honestly, he tried to ramp it up too soon in spring training. Uh, I remember the the day he got hurt, they were talking, he was throwing really hard there on the side. I'm like, man, late February, why are you trying to throw hard in late February? There's no. You're not going to make the club. There's no way they're going to let you make the rotation out of camp. They're going to wait and call you up. He would have been coming up right about now. Um, if you look back at their previous record of how, uh, their track record on how they've called up David Price and Blake Snell and and Jeremy Hellickson, all these guys came later, uh, came uh, after around Father's Day. So he was out there trying to pitch like he was going to make the team out of camp, and that was never going to happen. And I think ultimately that's what cost him the injury.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Jason Collette from RotoWire and the Sleeper in the Bus podcast. And Jason, during the season, I like our experts to talk about some players who you think will be boons and banes for the rest of the fantasy season. Any rationales are fine. Uh, but let's start with your boons. These are guys you think should interest our listeners because they could be helpful as we get down the rest of the way through this season. We'll start in the American League with a hitter who could be a boon.
1: Ah, uh, hitter, American League bull. I'm looking at Logan Morrison because his value is like rock bottom right now. Uh, you know, batting average is about 190, he hasn't hitting for the power that he hit last year. But then you start looking, go look at some of the Statcast data and look at his expected weighted on base average. It's 165 points above where his actual numbers. And you look at the quality of contact that he's made here recently, and it's good. It's just not showing up with the numbers yet. I'd be looking to buy Logan Morrison at a discount and see what happens here over the summer with him because the contact is better than the numbers right now.
0: And in the National League, who's a hitter who could be a boon? Uh,
1: I would say the same thing with Gregory Polanco. I, I know he got off to a very hot start, and then it went down. I know he's had some struggles defensively, uh, right, but his, right now his batting average is 215, and he's, got, uh, and he, he's been striking out a little bit more. But he's also doing a lot better with uh, with hitting for power uh, this year, too. He's almost matched all of his power counting numbers from last year in about 160 fewer plate appearances. And so uh, with him, but, um, again, the contact is better than the numbers, so that's my NL guy that I'd be trying to buy on the cheap right now.
0: Over to the mound, an American League pitcher who could be a boon.
1: American League pitcher for a boon to be, I'm, I'm digging deep here, but Paul Blackburn from Oakland. Uh, he's had three starts. Uh, He got absolutely trashed against the Astros, which is not to be surprised. There's a reason why the Astros have a 160-run differential on the year and and league baseball in that regard. But his other two starts have been good, and he's actually striking out. Last year, his strikeout rate was abysmal. Dom rate was like 3.5. Well, this year it's around 6, and that's still not the league average, but we're talking about AL only. You're looking for some guys. You and me both are hurting pitching-wise in tout. This is something we could look at, Blackburn's, uh, throwing more breaking balls this year is getting a little more swinging strike rates and not using that sinker as much as he's had. He's still got that the ground ball rate, but when a guy go when his down rate goes from three and a half to six, you kind of have to take notice. Uh, and even that six because he had that zero outing against the Astros where he didn't strike out anybody, but the other two outings have been have been usable in an AL format. So that's the guy that I'm looking at.
0: And you're certainly not going to have to bid a ton with an eight ERA, and I think his uh, whip is around one and a half. So probably not a lot of competition for Bla- Paul Blackburn. Uh, and f- how about a National League pitcher who's going to be a boon? Yeah,
1: uh, you know, He spoiled it for me the other day, but Nick Pavetta, I mean, he had an excellent outing good St. Louis, but I was already on him. Uh, coming into Monday, I, he, he, when you watch him pitch, you can see some of his upside. He had that game against uh, Baltimore a few weeks ago, where he struck out eleven. But consistency is really the thing with him. The stuff is there; it's just putting it all together in the same type of game. But you know, he's had fifteen starts this year and only has four wins. He's he's a better pitcher than that. His numbers are better than that. The, quali- the way he's been able to limit quality contact is better than that. And I think he can. I think he can get six, seven wins the rest of the way.
0: I like pitchers whose ERAs are well above their, however you want to expect the ERA or XFIP. Or there's a lot of different measures, but they all tend to tell the same story. And uh, uh, Pavetta's XFIP is barely over three, and his ERA is over four. I think there is a possibility there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like I said, the, the St. Louis, he's got another start uh, this weekend, uh, but that start against St. Louis kind of got everybody's attention when he struck out thirteen.
0: Jason Collette's Boones, Logan Morrison of Minnesota, Gregory Polanco of Pittsburgh, Paul Blackburn of Oakland, Nick Pavetta of Philadelphia. Let's move over to the Baines. These are guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious for the rest of the year. Again, let's start in the American League with a Bane hitter.
1: Uh, I'm looking at Gene Segura. I know the numbers are really good right now, but the quality of contact doesn't match. Uh, you look at the month of June, he's had two well-hit baseballs. And I'm looking at StatCast data, looking at barrels, and looking at solid contact. He has two yet he's got a triple slash of 319, 372, 458. Those two things, he's getting a lot of flares falling in. Uh, That is tough to count on the rest of the way. You probably bought Segura on the cheek this year at draft time. Uh, He's probably done a lot for you. He's probably high in the standings. I would be looking to see what I can get for him right now because a a slump is coming.
0: In the National League, who's a hitter, who's a bane?
1: Uh, Albert Amora Jr., uh, same same kind of thing. He has one solid contact for the month of June and 16 flares. Uh, you can't count on that. This is a guy who does not walk much, uh, expands the strike zone, and that's that's a real tough recipe for uh, sustaining. I know the numbers have been good right now, but I, uh, I'm i not encouraged about how the rest of the summer is going to play out for him.
0: Back to the mound in the American League, who's a pitcher who could be a Bane?
1: Mike Leake. Uh, Mike Leake, of Seattle has been on a roll of late. I mean, we thought, you know, we thought when they lost Robinson Cano, things were going to go south. They've actually been one of the best teams in baseball. Uh, they've had a very soft schedule for the most part, and they've been taking advantage of it. No more so than Mike Leake. I mean, he's been uh, he's been getting the wins despite the fact that his DOM rate is is about four and a half during this stretch. It's always been low, but it's even lower than than Mike Leake's norms. And he's stranding guys like he's a like he's a fireballing uh, reliever right now. Um, I don't like that mix. Boston really uh, spanked him the other day, and that's the kind of stuff that we can expect from him when he faces better teams here over the summer.
0: And finally, a National League pitcher, who's a Bane?
1: John Lester. Uh, John Lester has stranded every single base runner that has reached base in, in in the month of June. He's allowed two runs, both solo home runs. Uh, but other than that, every single guy's been stranded. He's got five straight wins. He's won nine of, his last, nine of his 15 decisions this year. To me, this screams, what was it, 1989 Jack Armstrong? This is what it kind of reminds yeah. me of. Is Everything has gone his way, um, despite when you look at some of the other stuff, it's like, no, this foundation's not going to last. So to me, John Lester, Jack Armstrong, I'm putting them in the same class. I'd be trying to sell John Lester off if he is my staff ace right now, because uh, that's not going to last this summer.
0: Jason Collette's Baines, and not good news if you're a Cubs or a Mariners fan, that's for sure. Uh, Gene Segura and Mike Leak of Seattle, Albert Amora Jr., and John Lester of the Cubs. Uh, geez, uh, Jason, this has been great. Tell our listeners where they can uh, read more from Jason Collette and keep track of you.
1: Sure. Uh, the Colette Calls column runs at Rotowire every Wednesday. Uh, I write it over the weekend, and then it usually gets published on Wednesday mornings. Uh, the most recent one was on Shohei Otani and the pass forward with him. Uh, if we look at if he had if the PRP injection works, what you could expect, or if he has to go the Tommy John route, what you can expect there. So that was that was just published uh, yesterday. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jason Colette C O L L E T uh, T E. Again, if you drop the E, you can talk Canadian music with the guy. He's uh, good, good. Look him up on Spotify. I like his music, uh, but he's terrible at baseball. Uh and but if, if you want somebody who knows baseball, hit me up.
0: Jason, thanks a million. I knew this was gonna be terrific and it certainly was every bit of that. I do appreciate and we'll talk to you again during the year.
1: Sure thing. Thanks, man.
0: And possibly I'll uh, be sending a trade offer your way. <laughs> Jason Collette writes for Rotowire and co-hosts the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. When we come back, it'll be our weekly talk with Todd Zola and Master Notes, coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio.
2: Now, who's playing third base? Why do you insist on putting who on third base? What am I putting on third? Well, what is on second? You don't want who on second. Who is on first? I don't know. Third base? <laughs> Outfield? Sure. The left fielder's name. Why? I just thought I'd ask you. Well, I just thought I'd tell you. Now tell me who's playing left field. Who is playing first? I'm not. Stay out of the infield! I want to know what's the guy's name in left field. Oh, no, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on who's second. Who's on first? I don't know. Third base! <laughs> Baseball
1: HQ Radio.
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Hey, before I forget, Early bird registration is available for First Pitch Arizona at BaseballHQ.com. It's right there on the front page. You can't miss it. You should check it out. First Pitch Arizona is a ton of fun, a lot of great information, a lot of guys just like you and me hanging around, talking fantasy baseball, talking real baseball, going and watching games with all the top prospects. First Pitch Arizona, you should check it out. Time now for Talk with Todd, and I'm happy to once again say to Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ
3: Radio. Really good to be back with you, PD.
0: We talked last week about when rates stabilize, and I thought that was a pretty interesting discussion. And then you mentioned in a Z-Files column this week that a lot of analysis that you've been reading and have read begins with a phrase, something along the lines of, it's a small sample size, but... And then you quoted an expert as saying nobody should ever say that phrase. What did you and this expert mean by that?
3: Yeah, well, if, if it's a small sample size, it's a small sample size. There is no but. You know, if the, the implication being... They're about to state a, a fact or stat or whatever it might be that you know it's it, it's it's not in it's not valid because it's such a small sample size. Sometimes it's an announcer you know an announcer saying it and you know they just want to say cool cool things over the air. But when it's a fantasy analyst, they you have to understand that there is no small sample size, but. It's a small sample size. End of end of end of end of question or end of statement. Whatever you're about to say is invalid. Now, having said that, uh, Bill James, who uh, I think we've all heard of, has said that extremes in small samples can be valid. So I don't know if that. I guess that's an exception. So uh, in, in now now is the you know what, what defines an extreme. I. I, you know depending on what it is, I, I don't know you know I, there's no definite definition, but we do need to keep that in mind that extremes in small samples have a chance to be you know real or partially real anyway. How can you be partially real? You're real? You're not real. but you know it might not be whatever the number is. If you say a 600, you know it, it, it may not be completely to that effect, but a batter might be good with those particular splits um if the if the extreme is if the if the small sample is extreme
0: yeah, and I think we hear that all the time and you mentioned uh, especially on game broadcasts and the the idea of a of a conclusion or an inference being created by reference to a small sample size is something we hear all the time, and it usually goes something like this uh, Jones is hitting four fourteen in his last seven games which is only 25 or 30 plate appearances probably and and at some point sometimes the other guy in the booth will say yeah that's a pretty small sample but it sure looks good for him or something like that and i guess what you're saying is if you feel it necessary to say it's a small sample but then you shouldn't be saying whatever it is you're about to say
3: right or don't have any implications that it means any i mean it's it's you know semantics or yeah but don't imply that it's important you can i mean you gotta say something in a booth, you know. It's, it's it's a fact. It happened. Just don't don't imply that. Expect the guy to get a homer to sit back because he's, uh, you know, Mookie. My my favorite. You know, I watched the Red Sox. Uh, Mookie Betts had a really good year last year in in Yards. So the Red Sox announcer is literally in shock every time Mookie doesn't hit a home run this year in Candom Yards. We see it in fantasy all the time, especially now. With all the numbers out there, we've, we've talked about this, even more important than knowing how to use these numbers is knowing how not to or when not to use these numbers. Just because they're there doesn't make them relevant, apropos, and, and actionable to, uh, to all scenarios.
0: I think that's the key point, and that kind of leads me to what I wanted to talk to you about as well. In that same uh, Z-Files column, you talked about uh, some surprise players on non-contending teams, and I thought this was an interesting concept because uh, non-contending teams offer different challenges and opportunities to fantasy owners than do contending teams because contending teams uh, tend to be a little more... um, solid in their rosters because they like what they've got and they don't want to mess it up but a non-contending team has a lot of uh, different things to consider Uh, what are the challenges for a guy like you whose projections obviously depend on accurately forecasting playing time
3: yeah i'm 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 giggling because i once had a conversation with our colleague chris liss that if if a genie came down and uh, uh you know be quote be you know be quote upon you um bequeath upon you the ability to know the skills of every single ball player in a given season or know the playing time of every single ball player in a given season which would you choose and i choose the playing time because you can get the skills within a particular range give me the playing time plus the playing time kind of if he's playing a lot that meant he was probably hitting, playing well. So it's kind of baked in. So yeah, and, and and it's often overlooked. And I think we even talked about it last week about ranking, ranking and the the percent error on projection systems. And I've never found a system I've liked. One reason being not a ranking system I like. One season. One reason being they don't they don't rank playing time, and they may rank a rate stat, but that means nothing in in a fantasy purposes because it's all about playing time. So. And the, the the challenge is, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not I'm not in dugouts. I don't have sources. I don't have a, you know, do people use Rolodex anymore. I guess it's a contacts on their yeah. phone. I don't have a contacts on my phone with all the you know managers. You know, I'm not texting GMs and texting even even beat writers. So I'm reading the same tea leaves that you are and and, and most everybody listening. And the challenge is applying. What I like to think is some common sense that I have after watching, you know, germinated after watching so many games and doing this for so long. I think that uh, I think I have a, a, a sense of being able to read some of these tea leaves and, and what teams will do. Maybe a little better than the the person that that is you know buying into my advice, so to speak. That's why they're trusting me to do it and uh, and just trying to figure out who's going to play, who's not going to play, and even the piece that I wrote. Last week, I'm writing a follow-up for the NL. and My opening this week is some of my observations were prescient, while others didn't age very well at all. By the time, by the time some people were reading it, some of the suggestions, or this guy should get called up, uh, had, had already, you know, r- rung false. So it's, it's it's just part and parcel to what it is we're doing here. But it's 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 a it's a fun time of the year to try to figure out playing time scenarios and that sort of thing because you're setting yourself up short and long term for that for that run and you know then we we're complacent but we're at the point of the year where we think we know what's going on but a lot of times we don't we, we've missed a team moving a guy up in the order or not giving the, a player who he thought was playing every day he's fallen into a platoon sometimes we miss those sort of things and this is the time of the year where um, it's sort of enough far enough into the year that it's it it becomes important because you can get an edge if you can identify some of these scenarios
0: in your column, you looked at hitters on all these non-contending American League teams, including catchers, infielders, and outfielders. I'm going to focus in on the catchers because I think, uh, like many people, I could use a, a catcher improvement if mm-hmm. I could get one. So let's start in Baltimore. You say that Chance Cisco has taken over the top catching spot for the Orioles, but that might not be good news for Chance Cisco owners. That seems <laughs> weird. What's the problem with Chance Cisco getting more playing time?
3: He's not hitting very well. He uh he he can he can he's got a hose. Uh you know the old the old expression with three and You know, I've seen he he can throw like the wind. And actually he was he's actually been optioned. Uh he since you know again some of these um some of these observations didn't age well. He he was actually optioned uh since uh since i wrote the piece in the, in the interim so that's that's not that's not a particularly good thing but um yeah the the point being he was hitting so poorly that he did you didn't want to bat in his lineup the power wasn't sufficient to overcome the low batting average which that's sort of the implication with catchers so we'll see if he's you know he still to me is the catcher of the future he's only 23 um the the defense, like I mentioned, is there. Baltimore is in the rebuilding mode. I still think you want him down the line, but the strikeout rate just was through the roof, and he he's kind of known for walk. He was he was taking fewer walks. but Again, he's a catcher. I mean, at, at 23, <clears throat> the narrative is catchers sometimes take a little while. So I think it makes sense. Let's not, let's not blow this kid's confidence in a season where we're not going anywhere. Uh, Caleb Joseph, who was supposed to be the regular, was an, having an off year. So he, he was he was brought up. Uh, Austin Wins is, is the other guy they've been using. Uh, he's really not part of the future. He's just more of a, more filler, could be a reserve. So I think this is more of a case of Cisco to get his head on straight, maybe get a little confidence with the bat and bring him back up.
0: In Boston, the Red Sox seem determined to get Blake Swihart more repetitions behind the plate. Uh, what are the ramifications of that
3: apparent uh, determination? Well, the thing with Alex Cora is he's he, he he usually comes through when when he says things. He, he 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 usually comes through with what he says. This is one that hasn't happened to come to fruition. Swihart has seen a game here and there, but he hasn't been worked in, and a lot of that has to do with some other injuries. Uh, Dustin Madroy is still being out, uh, etc., that he's been able to get Swihart some at-bats in the field. And the other end of it is Swihart's just not hitting. Swihart's just just terrible. And part of it, you can't get in a groove. It's kind of one of those catch-22s you need to hit to get in the groove but if you're not if you're not hitting you're not going to be given the chance his uh, you know his o, his OPS is 398 not his slugging not his on base his OPS is 398 so he's kind of hit himself out of that opportunity to uh, to pick up a few, a little more playing time so they're stank- sticking with what they always do and that's uh, Vasquez catches uh, 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 well, Leon catches Porcello and Sale, and Vasquez catches the rest, with Leon occasionally taking another one of Vasquez's starts. So it's pretty much a three to two split. Also, a catching
0: platoon in Houston, but you say right handed hitting Max Stassi is going to get some looks as we look ahead against right handers at Brian McCann's expense. Why do you think this is so?
3: Well, because again, McCann, McCann is not hitting. Um, He's hitting a little. Well, I don't know. I mean, when you when you're, he's hitting a little better lately. But it's still it's 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 not with the power that's expected. Of course, this is a team that can afford uh, a little less offensive catcher to pick up some defense with all you know with, with the with the, the top of the lineup and even the middle and the bottom of the lineup they have. So I think at this point Stassi's defense is, is a little better than than McCann. McCann's getting up there in age. I think you know when you know the playoffs are a different story then you need to be all systems go and i think you want a fresher mccann at the time so i think you know they're obviously both going to play i think it's more it's not a platoon situation but i think it's more of a split in that stacy's always going to stacy's always will have been relevant in only leagues but I guess at this point, he's borderline eligible and mixed. He's hitting well. He's hitting. He's not playing as much as some catchers, but he's hitting better than most. So in a 15-team mixed, he's still, depending on p- if you punted catching, he's, he's still probably in the mix. But um, I think as the season wears on, we're going to see more of a timeshare than a platoon out of Houston.
0: I should say that uh, Stassi's platoon splits are not really super favorable. A uh, 278 ISO against left-handed pitching, which is okay. A uh, 211 versus right-handed pitching, which is a little weaker, uh, His OPS reflects a similar sort of split. Uh, is there any chance, though, that a guy like Stassi, maybe if he gets more at bats against right-handed pitching, will improve against right-handed pitching?
3: Yeah, that's the theory, and you know it's a small sample, but <laughs> yeah, at this point, he he, he doesn't have nearly the number of plate appearances to say he owns those splits so and maybe this is a reason why you know the, the AJ Hinch may see this and may buy into the small sample and use McCann more but yeah I think that if Stacy's get Stassi's given some time consistent time against right-handed hitters he'll he'll learn again he's a young catcher too and again the narrative is catchers sometimes take more time to develop so I do think that uh he will uh, actually, he's not so young anymore either. He's 27, so he should be in the range where the development is, you know, is underway. Uh, but I still, I, I, think that that's somewhat of a fluke. The the numbers against right-handed batters, uh, right-handed pitchers.
0: And finally, Todd in Toronto, a non-contending Blue Jays club, has seen veteran Russell Martin pretty much fallen off a cliff offensively, and it hasn't gotten better all year. You say the future behind the plate for the Blue Jays is not Luke Maley, who's been catching pretty regularly there. But a guy down in AAA, do tell.
3: Yeah, well, hopefully you can uh, you can either correct me or em- em- embellish or or, or confirm that my thoughts. But but uh, Danny Jansen is seems to be the guy that uh, at this point has jumped up on the uh, depth chart as it were, the minor league depth chart, and t- is the catcher of the future. I'm, uh, I'm I'm I have a mental block over the the other the catcher's name that was sort of. Uh, competing with him that they put on Rule 5 and wasn't picked up. You may remember the name, but uh, Jansen has has uh, leapfrogged him, to me anyway, and is, is the guy that uh, I think they're counting on down the road. Now, you know, Toronto, how close are they? How far are they? The, the pitching is always a question. Uh, when you're competing against the Red Sox and Yankees, uh, for the you know for the division and or wild card you really need to be you know all systems go in order to compete so whether they bring jensen up this year or not to to, to burn some time i don't know but i don't know what else i don't know what else he has to prove he's he's another young catcher but he's uh he's he's crushing at triple a buffalo his uh you know 9 11 ops is, is is outstanding he's an on-base guy um he even has four steals and four attempts. So if if economics were not involved, he's one of those guys that would probably be in the major leagues right now. But economics are obviously a uh, a big factor. So um, a lot of my dynasty teams, one of the, you know, I I, I kind of take an opposite route of, of building. I, I kind of I, I have a lot of catchers in my dynasty teams uh, ultra roster at this point just because. And, and and I found in keeper and dynasty leagues, catching, for whatever reason, just goes for, you know, for whatever reason, it's because it's such a scarce commodity. The top catchers go for such a huge price that I like to have young catchers that I, uh, you know, so I'll sacrifice a, a speculative pitching spot or a, I'll, I'll choose a lesser catcher over a better hitter uh, to have as a keeper down the line. And, I, you know, maybe it's a little biased because I've got Jansen in a lot of these Ultra rosters, but uh, I, you know, he's sitting 308 with a 416 on base at 23 years old. He, you know, he should be in the majors at this point, but he's not because of the economics.
0: Yeah, and I have to say I don't fully understand exactly when these dates apply and how much benefit the team realizes by holding guys back. Uh, I know that there's a date uh, in May and another one in June having to do with Super Two arbitration eligibility and those kinds of things, and and I know enough about it to say that you're probably right, that if they just leave him in the minors all year, that that they may glean some benefit uh, down the road. But at the same time, they have to start doing something to, interest the fans at some point because either josh donaldson comes back uh, and doesn't play well or stays hurt or he gets traded or something like that which means there's really nothing to watch there except teoscar hernandez uh, blasting a home run once in a while the the blue jays have to get younger and they have to get more interesting and one of the ways to do that for them is to bring up a guy who's not only as you said uh, on base percent over 400 he's walking as much as he's striking out which in this day and age is nothing short of miraculous even if it isn't triple
3: a yeah, and I, you know, I, he, the the fact that he, uh, last year, he was seven of eight for, or two years ago, seven, eight for steals. You don't think of sort of a spark or excitement from a catcher, but he could be the type of player that, that provides that. So, and it's not, it's, you know, sometimes the narrative is they leave the catcher, the young catcher on the farm with the young pitchers that are coming up so they can develop a, a repertoire, a, a rapport, but they don't have that. They don't, they don't have the young pitching that uh, you know, at least at the level of some of these other clubs, Philadelphia or Atlanta, that you're, you know that it's even necessary to have the catcher and the pitcher sort of graduate together so that they are in sync at the major league level. They don't re- re- really even have that as an excuse. So, you know, uh, you know, Toronto should have some money. You'd like to think that they're one of the clubs that may be less. Ne- ne- it's not ne- it's less necessary to go down this road, but uh but who knows? you know I still you know it's not it's not as like jansen doesn't deserve it, so we'll uh we'll have to see, but you're right. um i mean the, the most exciting thing could be the day they let Russell Martin play all nine positions. maybe that'll be the coup de grace and that'll signal you know time you know time to go, but you know that's that that's the most in, in, you know relevant not so much relevant, but that's just the biggest news out of the catcher spot. Luke mali is just a, a journeyman and for a time. He was one of the top fantasy catchers just because he was hitting for enough power to overtake a, a somewhat low batting average, but he didn't have very many at-bats, so the average didn't matter. And that's just, that was more of a state of the the catching position than it is about how Luke Molly is. And I think at one point, some of the talk was Molly should be the Blue Jays' all-star representative. We'll see. We'll see about that. Yeah. I think Solarte may have something to say about that. But um, But anyway...
0: All right, Todd, interesting as always. Uh, We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Thanks a million.
3: All right. Talk to you later.
0: Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about unlucky starting pitchers. Regular Master Notes readers and listeners will know well how I feel about the wins category in fantasy. If you are new to MasterNotes or a regular reader-listener with the memory skills of a neon tetra, let me summarize. As a category, winds stink. They're capricious random events that don't measure baseball player skill nor fantasy owner acumen. Other than that, though, they're pretty great. But like Mark Twain said about the weather, everybody complains about winds, but nobody does anything about them. So let's correct that at least a little bit. Since wins are primarily luck-based, I thought it might be worthwhile to check and see how many pitchers might have suffered from some bad luck this year, pitching well enough in games that they should have won, but not actually getting the wins. The idea is that maybe these pitchers will start pitching with better luck, and might therefore be in line for some added luck and a few more W's as the season progresses. The first trick was to set the expectation of what should be a win for a starting pitcher. I made up a spreadsheet with every major league start this season through Tuesday's games and checked out the average performance in games that were won. It turns out that a starter getting at least six and a third innings with one base runner per inning or fewer, 0.95 strikeouts per inning or more, and no more than one home run in an appearance, won about 72% of those starts. That seemed to me like a reasonable definition of what I'm going to call a shoulda, Now, I know a shoulda could be more granular, and indeed I checked out every inning count over five against every base runner per innings pitched count and every strikeout per innings count, which turned out to be a lot of work with not a lot of benefit. Also, if you're wondering why earned runs and runs in general aren't in the calculation, I figure they're often out of the pitcher's control. A lot of runs score because of unfortunate sequencing, not bad pitching. Also, a lot of runs score because relievers allow their bequeathed runs to cross the plate. Again, not really the fault of the starting pitcher. Step two was to find out which pitchers were meeting those thresholds often. To nobody's surprise, the elite pitchers were, well, the elite pitchers. Among pitchers with 10 or more starts, the highest percentage of starts meeting the shoulda categories were Jose Barrios, 42% of his starts, Chris Sale with 40%. Corey Kluber, Luis Severino, Max Scherzer, Carlos Carrasco, Charlie Morton, and Steven Strasburg all at 33%, Justin Verlander and Jacob deGrom, 31% each, and Aaron Nola, Trevor Bauer, and Shohei Otani at 29% each. And keep in mind that in many or probably most cases, these aces missed their shouldas by narrowly missing just one of the three target thresholds. Now, we'd expect that any pitcher is going to lose the occasional shoulda despite good performance. But seven pitchers have lost at least two shouldas apiece. These are the pitchers who could be in line for a few extra wins as the season progresses by converting a more appropriate percentage of their shouldas and maybe lucking into a few less deserved wins to offset the wins they didn't get earlier. The parade of the supremely unlucky is led by Mets ace Jacob deGrom, who has gone winless in five of his six shouldas. His April 23rd start against Atlanta illustrates some of the ways a should becomes a didn't. DeGrom pitched brilliantly. He threw seven innings with six base runners and ten strikeouts. As I mentioned, we did not count runs allowed, but he didn't allow any. After striking out the side around a Dansby-Swanson single, DeGrom left the game having thrown 86 pitches, 67 of them for strikes. It was the kind of game that is a pleasure to watch, and unfortunately that's what the Mets hitters were doing, while not hitting. In fact, they were even less productive against Julio Turan through their seven innings than the Atlanta hitters were against DeGrom. The Mets scored no runs and put just six runners aboard. So that's way number one not to get a win in a shoulda. Have your team's hitters take the night off. Remarkably, though, in the top of the eighth, the Mets batters, apparently realizing DeGrom's show was over when he was pinch hit for, finally got busy. They loaded the bases on what has become a sadly typical rally. A walk, a bunt single, and an error on a number to third. Remarkable that they called it an error. After a pitching change, Joanna Cespedes flew out to short right. Too short to score the runner. But then Asdrubal Cabrera and Jay Bruce singled back-to-back to plate three runs and put DeGrom in line for the win. Needless to say, this is where way number two to not get a win in a should comes in. The relievers blow the lead. The Mets brought in A.J. Ramos, who sandwiched two walks around one strikeout. The Mets brought in Jerry Blevins to put out the fire, but instead he threw some gasoline on it, giving up a ringing double to Freddie Freeman to score the two runners and tie the game, and put DeGrom's Schutta under real threat. The coup de grace to the Schutta came in the bottom of the ninth. Mets closer Juris Familia came in to protect the one-run lead, promptly gave up a walk and a run-scoring triple to tie the game. A couple of batters later, he gave up a bunt hit to score the runner from third, and there's the ball game. What should have been a DeGrom win wasn't. The other starters with two or more shouldas are Boston ace left-hander Chris Sale and Houston right-hander Garrett Cole. Each of them has six shouldas with four that didn't pan out into wins. And Trevor Bauer, Dylan Bundy, Justin Verlander, and Kyle Gibson each has two shouldas that didn't get wins, although each of them did convert some shouldas into wins. Of this bunch of unfortunates, the chances are nobody in your league is going to give you a discount on DeGrom or Sale or Cole or Bauer or Verlander based on their bad luck in shouldas. If you can persuade them to sell based on that factor, you should be in the real estate business. But if you're chasing rainbows in the winds category, keep Dylan Bundy and Kyle Gibson in mind. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox in the weekly free Baseball HQ e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. You can also read Master Notes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And, of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 22nd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 22 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday full edition, Jason Collette from RotoWire and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Jason is an excellent baseball analyst and a great guest here on the show. Love to talk with him. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best Fantasy Baseball website in the business. Our MarketWatch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute was presented by Baseball HQ Minor Leagues Analyst Rob Gordon. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky. And our pitcher matchups presented by Baseball HQ Analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well and as always to Todd Zola, our guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt. I'm your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes or Stitcher or Pocket Cast, wherever you get your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that's what helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long.
8: Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking, and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.